and welcome to Final Games, a podcast about the games that inspired us. Thank you for joining me, your host, Liam Edwards, to once again, for the 67th time, banish another delightful games industry member to a deserted realm within Final Games, a place in which they can only take eight games with them to play for the rest of their days. I think it's safe to say that my guest for this week has come an extraordinarily long way since his first big break in the games industry animating characters for a kid's Tom and Jerry game back in the early 2000s. Having studied animation and electronic media at the University of Dundee in Scotland, the country in which my guest originally hails from, he has since gone on to work in a variety of different animation roles at some of the biggest studios in the industry. The first stop on his AAA path was working at Bioware back in 2004, working as a cinematic animator on Jade Empire. After finishing work on that project, he was tasked then as the principal lead animator on the first game of what became one of the biggest action RPG series of all time, Mass Effect. For all those incredibly immersive moments in intense conversation and decision making in Mass Effect, you have my guest's wonderful convincing animation to thank. He then briefly worked with Eidos uh, Montreal to help with the pre-production of their Deus Ex reboot, at the time, Human Revolution. This was before he was quickly snapped up again by Bioware to become their first ever hire for the newly formed Bioware Montreal, where as lead animator he worked in one of my favourite games of all time, Mass Effect 2. After wrapping up Mass Effect 2, my guest then decided to leave Bioware for a new venture at another huge AAA studio, this time at Ubisoft. Initially hired to help with just raising the quality of the cutscenes in the, at the time, upcoming Assassin's Creed 3, my guest ended up being the animation director for the entire project, being tasked with not only directing all of the in-game cutscenes, but also with assembling one of the largest animation teams for any video game ever at that point. Not quite content with all of the heavy hitters for projects my guest had already under his belt, my guest then left Ubisoft to join Naughty Dog where for the past three years he's been busy working as an animator on the incredible Uncharted 4 and the recently released expansion and standalone story, pretty much its own game, Uncharted The Lost Legacy. He and his work have been featured on Kotaku, Polygon, Game Informer, and he's even given multiple GTC talks about animation. He has his own website called Game Anim, and I'm incredibly excited to say that joining me this week is Gaming Twitter's go-to animation guy for anything video game animated, the excellent and talented Mr. Jonathan Cooper. Hello, Jonathan. Hi there. How are you doing? You've uh, done your research for sure. <laughs> I hope I got it right. I'm always nervous that there's something wrong about it. <laughs> oh, me too. No, that was awesome. Thank you very much. Like that's pretty much uh, brings back a lot of memories, you know. All those years. But it's, I thought that's the thing is when I was going through it. I mean, I've known and followed you on Twitter and stuff like that. And I and as I when we first started talking, I was talking to you about your your website, Game Anim, and how I yeah. had been using it for reference for animation stuff with work I'd been doing recently. And um, man. You've worked on some huge projects. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's the thing. Once you get the bug, you know. As soon as I left Scotland, I got to Bioware, and it was just like big games after that. And I don't know that I could go back. I'm not one of these people that hates AAA and is dying to break out on my own. You know, I just love the resources that you have, and you can really push push the game if you've actually got a big team. You know. Yeah, and that's the thing is you have worked solely, pretty much from the very beginning, maybe like a few smaller projects in the beginning, you've just non-stop AAA, huge studios with huge teams. Um, the one thing that I always wonder about that is does your own personal sort of animation style and stuff get diluted in the fact that you work with such huge teams? 
it doesn't get diluted because of the teams, but it does get diluted if you're not animating. I mean, I became a lead around 10 years ago. And so as a lead, you're more just running about scheduling and things. And I think, I genuinely believe, actually, if you do a good job of scheduling, then you free up time to start animating again. So you're able to do that. Uh, but as a director as well, you're mostly like just directing a team. You're not actually hands-on. So that's why it was really great to get back to back to that at Naughty Dog. There's a lot of, a lot of motion capture, but a lot of keyframe stuff as well, because we're animating yeah. like animals and objects and lots of things just collapsing all the time. So... Yeah, I wouldn't say it gets diluted, but it can get stale if you're out of the game for quite a while. Did you find it difficult after, you know, directing on Assassin's Creed 3 to then go back to being an animator and not only just like an animator, but working on pretty much one of the standout series for both graphics and realism and animation and all that kind of stuff? I wouldn't say it was difficult to like to make the move. It's it's I do miss like directing teams and stuff. But one of the cool things about Naughty Dog is pretty much uh, everyone not not everyone like we get some people from like smaller projects that haven't got that much experience and are just talented. But a lot of people are leads or were leads or directors elsewhere, and that's because they want to have people just be really autonomous. So that's the style of the, the studio. We don't have producers and we're quite proud of that. Um, we really have to get up and manage our own tasks and do all our own communication. There's no kind of chain of command or anything. You pretty much can go to anybody's desk and it's a lot of the work that gets put in there is because you want to do it. It's not because yeah. somebody gave you a task list of these 10 things we need to get done by Friday or whatever, you know. It's because, oh, I'm interested in this thing right now or I look at the whole story and I'm like, wow, that looks like an awesome sequence. I want to grab that for myself, you know. And and that's pretty much how it works. So a lot of people are autonomous and just making their own animations, scenes, getting in there. And I, I as much as possible, try to do more than animation. Like try to make little models, build the scene, pre-visit beforehand. And in the last project, I'm actually learning a little bit of scripting as well. So I can assemble the scene without the need for a designer. I just need a designer for the um, really complex animation blending and things we're doing. Excellent. That's so crazy. It's weird to see how animation has progressed over the years and stuff like that. And I think we're jumping a little too fast ahead, but we want to sort of rewind a little bit back to when you sort of first got started in the early 2000s. And as I mentioned in the introduction, you'd like sort of got your sort of, I, I quote, air quote here, big break yeah. working on um, <laughs> a Tom and Jerry game. Yeah. <laughs> um, sort of what is it that got you, you know, inspired into doing animation and then how was it that you trans you know you sort of transferred across the sea to then go work at you know one of the biggest studios in rpgs which was bioware at the time i still i still wonder how i managed to do that that was the that was the big fluke but i mean it's like just one of these things i've always been into into games um wasn't always into animation but always into playing games um but also making things like um back in my hometown in Scotland, Dundee, that's where they used to make the uh, Sinclair Spectrum. Uh, they'd actually have factories where they'd make them. There's like a British um, uh, computer that was as much about making games as it was about playing them. And so you had a lot of people had easy access. A lot of kids had access to this computer probably before the rest of the country, you know, because everyone knew somebody that worked at the factory. So I had that growing up and I was always kind of using art packages and things and then 
So I'm going way back. I'm going back before Tom and Jerry. This is like when I was like four <laughs> years old. I think I had my first art package uh, before I was 10. And, you know, you'd be programming as well, a little bit of that. And then later on, that got replaced with the Amiga because that was a much more powerful computer. And it was still playing games and stuff, but there was a lot of it was making art. You know, Deluxe Paint 3 was a, a really amazing uh, program back in the day because it allowed animation and I think I just fell into that that was the it was the step up from actually drawing pictures was making them move and come to life you know and I would have different games um, and different sorry different versions of the Amiga as I kind of progressed you know because I remember they added was it I started with the 600 and then I got the 1200 because that allowed more than 256 colors and you could get like more frames and memory and stuff and it was just all about making things and I, I didn't I wasn't really interested in drawing cartoons it was all about trying to replicate games so I'll talk about that a bit later when when we go through my some of my games you know yeah um, but that just led to um, our college by way of a studio you might have heard of DMA design was the DMA design yeah they made the, the original Grand Theft Auto and that was in my hometown as well um, I kind of got invited up to the studio there uh, because I'd sent them some artwork and this was this was at the end of high school because I was just animating pixel art all the time and I got invited up and got shown around how how a game studio works and it seemed fascinating but I remember at the time it was it was the change from 2D uh, pixel art to 3D and I remember being told like your pixel art is kind of it's great but it's it's not going to be used anymore they specifically said you won't see any round corners for a while everything's going to be very blocky and um Oh no! Polygonal, <laughs> and I kind of had my heart broken. And after that meeting, I, I think I got rid of my Amiga. I stopped playing video games, and I went to art college instead because I'm like, okay, I'm just going to do some some other art, uh, completely different. wasn't really interested in animation or games, and that was good because it helps grow as a, a person. You know, um, I think I was spending yeah. probably too much time in the in the home just uh, animating away. So went there and was just enjoying like a foundation course for art and around that time a friend had a playstation one that had tekken 2 on it and that just showed me like 3d animation how amazing it could be and i fell back in love with it so that kind of just made me do the remainder of the course with an aim to doing games did a cg animation at the end uh, on the silicon graphics so those kind of classic uh, uh i think they were they were just like computers that were designed purely for cg and so did a yeah i remember there was the the big thing was the final fantasy 7 oh they were using thing. that yeah probably for the pre-rendered yeah. stuff you know and i think yeah to do all the rendering yeah yeah so did some of that and landed a job in dundee um because i had at the time i had no desire to leave the country or even leave my hometown i didn't even want to go as far as edinburgh or anything you know so <laughs> i got this perfect job in the studio dma actually closed down a month before I graduated and I was like oh god like that was really bad luck but there was another studio that they opened uh, an office just down the road from our college so I went down there it was called uh, Viz Entertainment and got my first job there uh, making Tom and Jerry and then later on it was a game called Narc which was a remake of a classic 80s game and that was the first four years of of my career just basically I was I was just animating every single day. wasn't really doing anything else. wasn't really uh, doing game design or anything. It was just purely here's your animation, just make it. And like for four years straight, I just animated in 3D, and that really I think that helped just 
raise the quality of what I was able to do because you don't really learn a lot in college you're just given no. the opportunity to animate you know those people um, a lot of the teachers don't it's, have the experience to teach you you know yeah definitely the one thing I've sort of and I think a lot of people realize this is anything really to do with the games industry like you never truly have the experience ready for the job and no. most of the most of the games industry roles whether it's you know design or coding or scripting or animation and stuff like that is you need the engine or the the hardware and stuff like that that you can only get when you're actually at the company. Yeah. So a lot of it is on-the-job learning. Absolutely. Although nowadays, what's fantastic for people who aren't in the industry is they can access like the Unity and the Unreal Engine, which is I would have loved that back in the day, yeah. you know. Um, and you can it's get definitely Maya getting for free. easier. Yeah, it's getting easier, but it's also getting harder to get a job because now it's a cool job. It used to be a job that um, <laughs> I remember we had some kids kind of come up to our door at Viz and with his mum and she was saying like he's dropped out of school he hasn't passed any exams can he get a job here because it used to be like a job that was like it wasn't something you aspired to whereas now it's definitely something that, that people want to be involved with and it's something everyone now that, yeah and even parents of kids <laughs> will understand that yes you can actually get paid for this you know which is good yeah I, I'll still remember the day having worked on GTA for a long time and being sort of semi-involved with the games industry for a long time and my mum not quite understanding it and then I remember the day she called me up and she she'd been offered in Tesco Tesco is like a supermarket in the UK for anyone who's listening outside of the UK she'd been offered the chance to pre-order GTA 5 at Tesco and then that was when the reality of video games being a job career yeah. thing hit my mum. You know you've made when it. She, you know you've made yeah. it when you've you're in Tesco, you know. When you're in Tesco and you're <laughs> you're being asked to pre-order it. And did she did she pre-order it? No, but she uh she said, "Oh, and now I understand." <laughs> okay. Yeah. You're in there in the aisle next to your beans and all that kind of stuff, you know. You've been sold as a box <laughs> box product. That's pretty cool. So, so yeah. going that the, then from, you know, having this cushy job um, that you were enjoying, you know, animating all the time, learning and all that kind of things, and, you know, not having the inkling to leave Scotland, how did you end up going halfway across the world to then work at one of the biggest studios in the world? <laughs> um, okay, so you like this. Um, it was a bit of ambition. Uh, like, I, I really felt like they weren't making the, the quality of games that I was playing. Um, oh no way yeah totally I, I've got to be saying, saying though I, I really don't trust anybody that's not got a few shitty games on their resume you know if you've only made good yes. games like I don't think you really know the full spectrum of what's possible um, so so yeah I wasn't really happy although I did I was still kind of fond of Tom and Jerry but Narc was just a disaster so I really wanted to do something different and I think it was around the time where maybe it's still like that but it was really the thing you do when you've got a job and you've got some money is buy a house and invest in it and do all this kind of stuff and then you're moving on as a as an adult and so I was looking at buying houses did not did not successfully buy any thankfully I remember there was one in particular I really wanted to get this apartment this flat uh, it fell through so I had all this money saved and I was like you know what I'm gonna go on a holiday on a pilgrimage and I went to Japan and that was my big thing about like I'd been I traveled before but I specifically went to Japan with the aim of getting a job um, and so I was I was in Japan for a week and a half and I sent out my resume and demo reel to a whole bunch of studios 
I even dropped in on Nintendo. I kind of showed up at their door and just like kind of walked in with my demo reel. Um, they don't, they're not really a studio that appreciates walk-ins, but I did get, I did get a meeting with somebody from HR and it was just really, um, it was really embarrassing for both of us. Like we were just, you know, there was no way I couldn't speak, I couldn't speak Japanese. They couldn't speak English, but it was really awesome to just be there. Cause I felt like I was somewhere where they were actually making good games. And I genuinely wanted to work there. I even tailored a demo reel for, for Japanese studios and stuff, you know? Um, yeah. Uh, and so nothing really came of that, um, except like I realized I really wanted to go and work somewhere else. Uh, I really wanted to travel. I got the bug, um, and I wanted to find somewhere that would, you know, where they spoke English. <laughs> that was that was one of the prerequisites, unfortunately, because I didn't I didn't have the time or the patience to learn another language. So yeah. uh, I couldn't think like because I obviously there's America as the first place that came up. And I'd been to America before and really, um, really loved New York, but there were no studios in New York and I didn't really know anything about the rest of the company, the country. But there was kind of, it was the tail end of the Iraq war and I wasn't really, wasn't really impressed with that, the way that country was being running. It seems like a much better place compared to where it is now. But at the time I was like, my principles were like, I don't want to go to America outside of New York because I knew that was awesome. And so I remember opening an Edge magazine uh, one day and it just had this whole article on Canada and I was like, wow, they speak English. It's kind of like America. Um, I just hadn't <laughs> thought about it before, you know. So that yeah. was that was that just started a whole process of making a, a completely different demo reel and sending it to a whole bunch of studios across Canada. And it just happened that Bioware were really good at their HR. They were really fast. They got back to me really fast. And um, I was I had a phone interview and was out there phone out for an interview um, within like within a matter of weeks. Like it was really, really fast. And the the cool thing about Bioware at the time was I hadn't really played any of their games, but I did work with a chap who was playing KOTOR at the time, and he would come in every single day and tell me all the amazing things that were happening in the game. And I was just like so amazed by wow, this is, I never knew that you could do these things, make these decisions in a game. And they were working on Jade Emperor at the time. And so I was looking yeah. at all the concept art and I was like, wow, this looks like any time I've looked at concept art for a movie, especially when I looked at the concept art for Knights of the Old Republic, it looked comparable to the stuff from movies. So I was yeah. like, this is just night and day compared to what I'm doing here at work. So apply to them. And thankfully they were the first that got back. And I had no idea really that they were going to, like they were already a good studio, but I didn't really realize that. And and then they, I would say they kind of went from being good to great, or from great to even better. Uh, yeah, there was definitely was that period really from, you know, they did like the older PC RPGs, and they yeah. had this kind of fan base. But it was you know PC very PC centric, and yeah. they had Kotor, and Kotor came out, and Kotor was huge. It was the Star Wars license, and it was a, an incredibly highly rated game. Then Jade Empire was like a super highly rated game, and but it was more of a cult classic type yeah, of thing. Yeah, totally. It never And then, never had the boom. Yeah. And then, boom, you, you had Mass Effect, and then it was just like, well, now it's on every platform. Everyone really likes it, and it's just like, now Bioware's on the map. Yeah. Now, alongside Dragon's Age and that kind of thing, yeah. just out of nowhere. It's interesting to hear from the outside that that's how it was, yeah, because it was amazing being in there. Like, um, like I said, I didn't really know 
uh, I couldn't really compare because um, my previous experience wasn't as good. But I, I remember going out there and I'd seen some Unreal Engine 3 stuff on on the net beforehand and they showed me the Unreal Engine, told me they were making like a third person science fiction, third person shooter type RPG. And I had just done NARC, which, like I said, was a terrible game, but it was a third-person shooter, so I had all this experience that they didn't have, and I was able to, even in the interview, give them some advice on how to do aiming and that type of thing, and I think that really helped clinch it, so... Like it wasn't just the quality of my animation. I happened to have the right experience for the game, so yeah, like, that they needed. Yeah, and so they wanted me for Mass Effect, but it came on and and kind of did like the tail end of uh, Jade Empire. Did a bunch of cutscenes, and that was great. And then quickly moved on to onto Mass Effect afterwards. Um, wasn't initially. You said in your interview that in your intro that I was the lead initially, but came on as an in-game animator and then worked my way up. You know, I think. Within a few months, I got made the lead because just again, walk the lead at the time became the director of animation for the whole studio. So that was that was just really fortunate, and I think it was really because I was able to push through a whole bunch of ideas, you know, um, and do stuff that they they weren't doing before. I mean, Jade Empire was I think their first like game where it really had real time combat. Um, yeah, but the thing that we focused on for Mass Effect was the dialogue scenes. Because, you know, the third-person shooter part was important, but really, I was really interested in pushing the quality of the faces and getting the cameras in closer, because it was the turn of the new generation to Xbox 360, so all of a sudden we had characters that looked really good in close-up, and I really, like, spent a long time, you know, working on cameras to get them to look really cinematic, um, because prior to that, they just had in-game cameras, and I think Jade Empire and Kotor, they just shoved them right in their faces, whereas I knew a little bit more about, you know, lenses and things, so we were able to get them in there really close, and there was a whole team behind this, but um, I was really keen on improving the quality of the, the facial more than anything, and everything It's incredible, else because, you know, flash forward now to yeah. the series being one of the standout triple a series of the last generation and of course still continuing on now and you know it's known for its like it's not really known for its combat is it it's still an rpg it's a third person action rpg but what it's known for is those moments with shepherd having conversations and the relationships and the way it's framed and yeah. the intimacy and that kind of thing. And it's crazy to hear, you know, you're talking about how that all started and, you know, your experiences with lenses and stuff and then, you know, giving ideas to the team and, and that being the genesis for, you know, one of the reasons as to why one of the biggest AAA <laughs> action RPGs out there is so well known. It's funny because it really... You know, it was a new IP, so it wasn't known, but it was basically they wanted to make their own Star Wars. A lot of the, it was essentially the Knights of the Old Republic team that were making this game, and they wanted to make their own Star Wars, and they were just really trying to push it. But they they didn't work on Jade Empire. You know, the the bulk of the team did, but the core team didn't, and so they were just coming straight off at Knights of the Old Republic. And yeah, at the time it was just the Wild West. We hadn't really hadn't really worked with motion capture, uh, hadn't got the cameras in as close as that. Um, they were working with Unreal for the first time, which was, in retrospect, it was very difficult. But 
they re it really helped you know get the look much better quality than the previous Bioware games. And the Unreal Engine actually had a lot of cool stuff for animation. I'm still uh, still friends with the the programmer from Epic that added a lot of that stuff in Unreal from that initial relationship because we had a we had a good kind of back and forth even though they were yeah. in America and stuff because. Bioware was making one one of the titles that was really showing off the tech, you know. So there was a lot of just just making stuff like, oh man, wouldn't it be cool if you could blend these two things together. Just hadn't been done in games before. Just trying shit. Yeah, yeah. Like um, <laughs> adding animations together hadn't been done, although it was being done at the same time. Actually, in places like Naughty Dog, the Uncharted One was actually doing a lot of the same things. So we were all just falling in, into the same place, but we were just realizing what could be done with animation. So. Yeah, it was it was a great experience working on Mass Effect, and then, um, like I I left around the time before the game shipped, and we actually had uh, we finished the animation, we finished a lot of the art, but the game really wasn't ready. It was kind of it wasn't ready for prime time, so they delayed it a few months. Uh, but I had already unfortunately made the decision to leave to go to Montreal purely for personal reasons like I met a girl and that's I think that's a good enough <laughs> rock and roll reason for me really didn't I did not want to leave Bioware at all I loved the place but um, I had to go to Montreal just for my sanity because I was doing a long distance relationship and yeah. got a job there I actually had a, a, a job at a small studio that I wasn't really interested in uh, but I was mostly moving for, for personal reasons, like I said. Um, but before that job started, I actually got contacted by Eidos Montreal. And and they were doing, you know, got invited up. They were doing like a new, a, a remake of an old IP. And I actually thought it was going to be Soul Reaver. I was super excited, you know, that it could be like <laughs> another third person action game. And I got there and it was Deus Ex. And to be honest, like Deus Ex is one of my favorite games. It's not on my list of eight, but it's uh, it's really like it was one of my favorite at the time, and it totally made sense, you know, coming off of Mass Effect, going on to Deus Ex. So worked uh, I, very I, very similar. Yeah, it was they were, framing and that kind of thing. Yeah, I imagine there's some technical to. details that is completely different about both, but you know that sort of third person action yeah, RPG your experience matches it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So it made sense and. And you know it was a big game again. Like like I said, once you've done it once, it's hard to go back. So uh, moved over to that job first and uh, worked there for about a year. But you know it was it was a fun experience. <laughs> but uh, you know because we were starting a studio, the studio didn't exist before before we started there. Like, I think I was the sixth or seventh person in the studio and built a team, and we were using the Tomb Raider engine to try and make a completely different game which is very difficult turns out and uh, yeah there was there was a lot of it was my first experience in montreal and it's funny i said i moved to canada because i speak english but you might know they also speak french there and yeah. that was a very pro french team they were they were all yeah of still is guys. isn't it uh, i think so yeah which was ironic given it was actually a british company idos but um, yes I was the only Ian person. Ian Livingston's original company. Yeah, yeah totally. He's a, he's seems like a really nice chap. Met him a couple of times when we were there. Um, and like I think a lot of the team were kind of ex Ubisoft. In fact, I was the only lead on the team that wasn't from Ubisoft. And they were all they were a wee bit frustrated with the way games are made in Montreal, and they wanted to do it their way. And it was just a way that I did not agree with coming from Bioware because Bioware is really a it's a human centric team. It's really about 
cooperation and you know they really look after you there whereas this team was more about um setting different teams different um parts of the team against each other to try and make something beautiful which is something i've never agreed with you know competitive nature yeah i don't yeah yeah i don't tend to agree with that in games space either it doesn't yeah it doesn't, it doesn't fit sense. well with the culture of the fact that it's already like a melting pot anyway like yeah. for anyone who has not worked in the games industry usually making video games is really fucking hard <laughs> and because of the long hours and because of you know especially when you're working on a project that's international you have people of all different cultures and all different international uh different internationalities and stuff like that and um it's it can be a melting pot of people being so close together for so long and if you add that sort of competitive edge to a project ah uh, yeah not absolutely good. yeah and it was kind of like in that studio it was manufactured artificially which I, I thought was insane you know people were trying to get along and they were like trying to pitch us against each other so it really didn't didn't enjoy my times towards the end and also because i didn't speak french it was very difficult to get along in a lot of the meetings um although i was learning french you know i'm not one of these people that just doesn't want to doesn't want to learn like japanese you know but um yeah uh, it just it wasn't coming together and i was like oh my god i really miss bioware it would be great if bioware was here and because i wasn't going to move back and what happened was EA bought Bioware, and that meant tech legally that EA, um, well, Bioware had a legal entity in Quebec. That was the thing I didn't mention. Like when I left Bioware the first time, they were trying to get it so I could work remotely. But but as a as a foreign national, I couldn't do it because they didn't have a studio in that part of Canada. Whereas all of a sudden they did, and so they got back in touch with me um, to start a team out of Montreal to do cinematics to help them with the, the cutscenes on Mass Effect 2. That was already in production and that was just like a dream come true. It's like one of these things you're kinda you're wishing for and didn't think it would happen, but they did get in touch it just with happens. Me yeah, and <laughs> coincidentally there were actually two other animators from Mass Effect One that had since moved to Montreal. So it was kinda like we got the got the guys back together and built a team, like they'd moved to other studios pulled them back in, hired a few new people that were really talented, and we got to work within the EA Montreal studio, but we were totally separate. Like We were Bioware, and they were, they were EA, and uh, we were making the, the cutscenes, and it was great, because it was a sequel, we knew the characters, we knew Shepard, and you know, the kind of things that he did. We knew the technology, and we were able to bang that thing out to the point that, like, that I really believe that game certainly the cinematics were a lot better just because of the team we put together you know it was so fun and we worked on that for over a year and it came out and it was just it was a a great project there was a lot of none of this fighting that i had at the previous studio everyone's working together even though they were thousands of miles apart we were calling each other every day and because we had these personal relationships because we knew a lot of the people in edmonton already it was super simple to just pick up the phone and call like an effects artist to add something to my cutscene to make it yeah. better and they would ask for things and we could you know there's a lot of back and forth so if, i'm not afraid of that kind of distance working as long as you have the personal relationships because um you'll probably know as well like like you said it's not about competing with each other game development is mostly about good relationships with other people it's not about technology either it's just about knowing who to talk to and how to talk to them and soft yeah, skills it's yeah it's funny you said because like just before we started talking we were talking a little bit about naughty dog and we were talking about you know the work you do at naughty dog and that kind of thing you said it's very much a studio where oh, yeah. 
you just get up from your desk and you head over to someone else's desk and you problem solve together yeah. and you work something out together or you try something together and that definitely feels like the kind of thing that makes studios like Naughty Dog special and you know going yeah. back to the Bioware thing that's why these companies are so successful and have such incredible projects that definitely feel more um, like there's passion behind them and that kind of thing and you can definitely see it in the work that comes out of those studios and yeah. it it definitely comes from you know that that company culture of we are a team yeah we 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 live and die together as a team it's not one individual at all yeah and it's where it's where a lot of the little details come from they come from conversations between people they're not from like a task list given by a manager to a bunch of people that you know they then go through them one by one and then deliver them by the by the I don't know whatever the the meeting date is and stuff. You know, a lot of it's just back and forth. And yeah, Naughty Dog really is set up for that. Their whole pipeline is set up for that. So it's and it, we only tend to hire people that can do that as well. That's why we can get away with uh, no no um, producers, which is great. So then, so then before we get ready to ship you off, just before we get ready to, you know, stop talking about wonderful countries and get <laughs> you ready to go to a deserted one where there will be no one. Tell me then, you know, you sort of hinted initially that your 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 displeasure at America and um, you know not wanting to go there in the first place, and having spent you know a seriously long time living in Canada, you know, in different parts of Canada, you'd then gone to Ubisoft as well in Canada and worked on Assassin's Creed. Um, why then did you go and decide? Oh fuck it, I'll go to California and I'll go work at Naughty Dog. <laughs> um, well. Um... So we'd we'd done like we're going to skip over this whole thing, but we'd 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 shipped uh, Assassin's Creed Three, and that was a great project. That was a lot of fun, um, and then we'd moved on. Like the the core team that had made Assassin's Creed Three had moved on, and we were making a new IP, uh, which was a whole lot of fun. Like still hasn't been announced, so I can't talk about it. And that's assuming that it hasn't been cancelled. Uh, I, I believe it hasn't been cancelled yet. And we were really like pushing the boat out, trying a whole bunch of new technologies. I didn't want to leave, and I think it was more again, it was a personal, personal reason. Um, I was just done with the weather. You know, the weather in Canada <laughs> is awful. It's something You're from Scotland. Oh God, it's worse than Scotland. Like it's actually, it's it's <laughs> funny though. Like Scotland, Scotland is raining all the time, but then I moved to Edmonton and that was just freezing cold and snowing. Uh, Montreal wasn't as cold, but it snows more. And just having snow outside your door for like six months of the year, like it, it's the little <laughs> things add up. Like every time you want to go yes. out, you want to get your bread and milk from the corner store you have to spend like five minutes putting on your jacket and your boots and everything and and honestly like one of the things as well is um crunching if you're crunching on a game uh in california and you're crunching and you're working hard but then at lunchtime you go out and it's beautiful sun and you go off to nice restaurants and stuff and Uh, sit outside and replenish your energy and then on the weekend you go and lie by the beach that is totally different from crunching on a project where like every lunchtime you're kind of like going out in a blizzard and <laughs> on the weekend it's just awful and so the, the weather was the biggest part and um yeah it was just i was looking for a change and just trying out a bunch of studios but naughty dog were really like they've done the last of us 
at the time, and that was just a, a game changer because not because I didn't go there because just because of quality of the animation. I think after you've been in games for like like I've been in for seventeen years now, going on eighteen, and it's really what you want to work on is something that means something rather than yeah. just something that has great graphics or something that sells a boatload. It's it's like I want something that actually makes a change in people's lives and The Last of Us like was clearly a step in that direction. It definitely affected a lot of people. It was a more mature game than I'd ever played before and just like they were trying to do stuff that wasn't just about running around and shooting people and blowing things up which Uncharted really has a lot of that but it's always been about like the personal relationships with Drake um, and his you know his immediate surroundings his immediate yeah. kind of friends and family yeah. whereas The Last of Us was just like that again times a hundred I find so that was one of the reasons why I was interested in going down there and yeah it was just it was a personal decision and I was I, I must admit I'm really lucky that they gave me the job because they did not I did not get the job because I'd worked on Assassin's Creed 3 it was just because I happened to have the right things that they were looking for. You know, they don't tend to hire people because of the resume, which I think is is a great way to do it. You should hire people because they fit with the team and they you know, they're just going to work. It's very good because it seems like you, you know, you sort of your very first role at BioWare was the same sort of reason, you know, obviously you'd not worked on any huge projects at that time, but this, the skill sets you had was what they needed and that's why they hired you. And it seems like obviously the same thing worked out with yeah. Naughty Dog as well. Um, but you did have these um, proven credits as we did to skip over a little bit of the Assassin's Creed thing. You know, you'd led like one of the largest animation teams <laughs> yeah. on any video game at any time, which is, you know, quite commendable um i can't imagine even the chaotic mess that must have been um oh, yeah. but you know we have to get ready to send you on your way to a deserted place which we'll talk about in a little while but you have chosen eight games to take with you and i'm very distinctly interested because you said to me you mentioned there's a little bit of an animation sort of anecdote to each one that yeah. you've chosen as well as the fact that they're awesome games that you love too so i'm incredibly interested to hear them so i think it's about time that we get into those eight games and sure. we start talking about them jonathan okay are you ready to get ready you know with, with the, as the sort of time goes on we're getting closer to sending you to a deserted place so i'm wondering how you're going to deal with that it's scary, but let's go for it. If I can bring my games, I'm happy. <laughs> okay, well, I'm super intrigued about getting into this first game anyway, so why don't we listen to some music from the first game on Jonathan's list and jump into his final games.
So kicking off Jonathan's list is an incredibly interesting game, which I'm very happy to say is the first time it's ever appeared on Final Games, I think for sort of obvious reasons. It's very unique. Um, although I will admit, for me personally, it happens to be the second best wrestling game on the Nintendo 64. <laughs> it's the second best. Yep. It's not the first, it's the second. The sequel to this game is a game I love very dearly um but the game you have chosen was a game that was developed um i think it was originally developed like in japan yep aki corporation yeah aki corporation developed it in japan for the nintendo 64 which is crazy considering the license was the wwf which is you know the, the biggest wrestling american wrestling company yep. in the world um but in japan they know how to make wrestling games that's for sure um it was published by thq over in the west and it released back in october of 1999 for the nintendo 64 and also the game boy color it is wwf wrestlemania 2000 jonathan Absolutely. what a way to kick things off why yep. is this why is this the first game that's going with you so yeah you've got to understand the context as to why no Mercy is not on the list, and because No yeah, Mercy no is the best much one. better game. Yeah, it's a much <laughs> better game. Um, so I, I think it was around the time I was back in our college, and I'd moved out uh, of my parents' house and was living with a couple of my best friends—not my college friends, but my school buddies, you know—from uh, high school. And we were playing the one prior to this, WCW NWO Revenge. A lot oh, on yeah. N64, and wrestling was really big in our lives. You know, I just loved it. I, I don't watch it now, um, but I still appreciate it. But we used to watch it all the time, and you know, don't worry, we understand, we understood it was, it's not real, but it's, it's, it's an amazing feat watching yes. massive men throwing each other around and not, you know, hurting themselves. I was going to say not killing themselves, although we did watch. You know, we saw some people die on some of the pay-per-views because it's just like that big of a deal, you know. So we'd started with uh, uh, Revenge and it was just an amazing game. But we were all into WWF, as most people were, you know. And we were playing Revenge a lot and it was just amazing for its character customization and you could do a lot of things. And the whole talk were like, all the time, were like, wouldn't it be amazing if they somehow got the WWF license that would just be the best game ever. And I just remember the day that like read it somewhere uh, that it was just like coming out WrestleMania 2000. And it was so exciting. I specifically remember going down to the store to pick this one up. And I, I just couldn't wait to get back to play it. And you have to understand, like I almost got kicked out of college for playing this game so much. Uh, I they actually I missed so many classes that they actually made me um, have to sign in in the morning. So they actually put me on this program where I had to sign in just to come in and do my animation class because I spent most of the time just staying at home playing WrestleMania 2000 with my buddies, and they were they were doing the same as well, of course. <laughs> Isn't it amazing to think that WWF WrestleMania 2000? Could have been the game that prevented you from working on <laughs> yeah. Mass Effect, yeah. Assassin's Creed, and Uncharted because you were too busy playing WWE. I think, I think it would have been worth it, man. It would have been worth it because that game was so good at the time. Like, you you could customize your character. Um, you know, their look was, you could totally change it. But the thing that got me about this game was you could give them the entire moveset. 
So you had yes. like a suite of walk cycles, for example. They, they were taken from all the other characters. But you can make your own custom character that way. You can make your own special moves. They had a lot of ones that weren't even used by the other characters. So we would make our own ones, give them names. We had entire... I, th- I think we had leagues going on and stuff. We had you'd fight for a belt and stuff as well, and we all had our own characters. Mine was the Cat Cooper, which was he was that was named after my dad. He he used to play uh, football, soccer, and I think he was a goalie for quite a while. So I, I don't know why they call him the Cat. You know, I guess it because it, it was a bit of alliteration. <laughs> and my special move was the Cat's Meow, and it was just like you knew when you had your enemy, your kind of opponent in the move and everyone knew the cat's meow was coming and it would just like, that would end so many matches and the beauty about this game um, and I'm surprised a lot of other games don't do it, is that it wasn't about an energy bar that you had to reduce and then eventually pin the character it was about you know it was about getting the crowd on your side it was about momentum and so you could make amazing comebacks if you were down on momentum uh, but for some reason you know it was a four-player game you just managed to avoid a lot of the fighting for a while you could like do you could pull off one amazing move that the crowd would cheer for and that would build up your momentum again so we'd have like some epic matches would last for longer than an hour especially the um especially the Royal Rumbles, because they were just like they were just huge and epic, and we had our story going on. You had all the regular characters, and then your custom character would come in at a random point. And, yeah, there was so many nights spent playing this game that I miss it so much that I, I could totally go to an island. And to be honest, you don't need any of the other seven. I could just play this one over and over, you know? It's, <laughs> it's so, so great. It's so great because not to the extent where I nearly missed college, but I do remember very like the n64 for me being you know only 27 sort of i'd got into games and i was playing games and i was enjoying them but it was the n64 that truly you know sort of set me on the path i then became wanting to be involved with games and work on games and that kind of thing all because of the time i spent with the n64 and it was games like you know, you had obviously Super Mario 64 and Ocarina of Time and GoldenEye and yeah. all those things. But there was other stuff around the N64, games like Snowboard Kids and um, Torok and all those kind of crazy other third-party games that I really enjoyed. And I have so many memories of playing No Mercy with yeah. my brother and with my friends. And the same thing you could do as well, which is like you could make custom characters and you could design how they looked. You could do the Titan Tron stuff and you could change the music and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. But the, but the thing you could do is you could build out their, their whole like suite of moves and you could give them their whole you know roster and they would be walking and then all of a sudden you could like change it to like a choke slam and they do like a choke slam and stuff like that. Just so many memories of how amazing those games yeah. were. One one standout memory I remember was uh, I recall was like you know you know how you did it you did the special move by just touching the analog stick right once you had somebody in a mo- in a hold when yeah, you had you would flip it in a different throw. direction yeah yeah you just choose because I think you could have a few so you'd choose the d- direction and I remember this one fight that just went on forever it was just a war of attrition between me and my best mate and we got to the point where he had me in the hold he had the special move. And he just looked at me and brought the controller up to his face and just licked. He licked the stick and did the move and then pinned me. And I was just like, it was such a big insult that it's never left me, you know. But it was so good. Like, it was totally worth it. And 
so you've you've played you've played uh, No Mercy more. I guess we got that as well. Of course, we got. Yeah, so that I played. I out. played. Yeah, I played WrestleMania a bit, like at a friend's house and stuff. But I think because I was back in the day, I was huge into wrestling, huge, right. huge, huge into wrestling. So my parents bought me. No Mercy, I think it was for my birthday. I think I'd asked for it. I'd seen like an advert for it on TV. And, you know, I think uh, one of the like, it was like The Undertaker and Kane were kind of the two people who were advertising it because No Mercy was a little more edgy, a little okay. more darker. Yes. During that sort of just after the Attitude Era kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I remember being a huge fan of The Undertaker and Kane and that kind of thing. I was just like, I won that game so badly. I want to wrestle as like Kane and The Undertaker. Um, but yeah, I spent so many hours playing No Mercy. Yeah, the attitude area era was just like it was amazing, you know. It's just that was such a big part of our life. We used to just go up to a buddy's house, and he was the one that had cable, so we'd we'd either go up to his house and watch it as you are right now, you know, at midnight, from midnight on because of the time difference, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> or we just record it and kind of watch it back home. So, record so. it on tape. Yes. Oh, I try and avoid. A, like, avoid knowing who had won and we'd all sit and watch it together and stuff you know so this game was just like it managed to capture the whole feeling of that that game you know of that that era as well it was just it was just magic you know so it i guess no mercy came too late that's all yeah well they definitely captured both of them they definitely captured this sort of the spirit of the wwf and everything was nailed the titan trons and the yeah. entrances and the ring and as you said you know the crowd getting the crowd on your side and you know you, i remember in no mercy you could like go to the crowd and you could like pick out like a, a steel chair from in the crowd and yeah pull it out just of thin air they'd, they'd <laughs> love that. whacking people with it <laughs> and that's that's pretty much and that's what wrestling is all about in real life as well you will get somebody if they're like the rock was the perfect heel he was just so good at being the bad guy because he was great on the mic. And that's how people, we were just interested in which storylines they decided to go with, who they decided yeah. to to kind of raise up and stuff. And that's why it was always fun. You know, a lot of my, a lot of my fellow students at our college didn't get it at all. But, you know, that was pretty much what, what we spent our life doing there when, when not in, in college, when not forced to go to college, I guess, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can take it with you, and um, although we do have seven games to go through, I feel like we chose the best first. Uh, <laughs> you can take that one with you, and you know when you when you need a break from all of the testosterone and all of the wrestling, you can uh, then take a sort of dive into the next seven that we're going to start talking about now. Then, perfect. Well, how about we listen to some music from this next game then, which is also a fighting game, and in some sense the biggest fighting game pretty much of all time. Um, so we're going from wrestling to street fighting. Um, so why don't we listen to some incredible music, some iconic music from this next series. And let's, of course, as always, dive straight into it.
So just before we jump into the second game, as always, Jonathan, we need to talk about the deserted place in which we're going to send you. So we allow you the choice of the deserted place. We're not just going to send you to some black abyss or some deserted island where you're only playing these games. We want to at least be a little kind. You know, we're already giving you eight games. We kind of want you to be comfortable. So we allow you to choose the deserted place in which you're going to go. The caveat being that it has to be from video games. It has to be a place or a world or an area from a video game. And on top of that, it's deserted, of course. But if it's a game that has maybe dangerous wildlife or something like that, well, that's going to be there because that's a part of the wildlife. But no NPCs that can help you out, no one who can sort of transport you or, you know, fast travel across the map kind of thing. Um, so if there is anywhere that sort of strikes in your mind... Yeah, I mean, I, I pretty much took this thing literally and I only looked at... I only looked at des desert islands um, because I'm going to choose some place. I'm going to choose some place with beautiful blue skies and water and you know things that I could hunt and live off. So um, the first one that came to mind, this is not the one I stuck with, but the first one that came to mind was the open water section in Uncharted 4. It's just like the most beautiful island I've then ever seen in a game. It's pretty much the prettiest graphics I've ever seen in any video game is that section alone. I remember spending so many goddamn hours taking photos of that area specifically <laughs> yeah, oh my just, god so many hours it's so nice like, did you find all the dolphins i think we had an achievement if you found all the dolphins that oh, i don't think your i got the achievement i, I remember finding a dolphin and being like oh my god a fucking dolphin i can yeah. take a photo of it <laughs> a dolphin and follow your boat and stuff um so that was the first one but honestly like i was thinking a bit more rationally i would really like to have to go for like Koopa Troopa Beach on Mario Kart 64. Back oh, if I still with the 64, just because like it had that shortcut cave, and that's where a place I think I could live. You know, I could live in that cave, and I could go out on the beach and do my hunting and stuff. And maybe if there's carts as well, but nobody to race against, you know, that would be a lot of fun too. I, I'll give you the car. I'll allow you to get around the island on the car. Cheers. Yeah, that tiny no island. That would yeah, that tiny insane, island. You know? <laughs> You know, you're still going to have a little bit more fun as well. So I'll give you the card too. So the Cooper Trooper Island, yep, um, it's sort of the beach areas. Well, we're going to send you there then with this next game. And what a wonderful place to be playing wrestling games and this next game. Really beautiful Absolutely. blue skies. But I can't I can't stop thinking about how good a choice the Uncharted 4 one is now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I'm kind of kind of regretting that choice. One see. looks incredibly realistic. The other one, as you know, is quite polygonical it has things to do though that's the main thing to uh, just have my games and my cats that's true that's true you'd have to eat the dolphins as well you know really to survive yeah. and that would yeah. be quite a heart-wrenching thing to do because dolphins are yeah. wonderful yeah there were fish i think, I think <laughs> there, there, was fish a, there was a turtle at some point as well but you can't eat a turtle and do you have like drake like powers to be able to climb anything uh no I just then need to live in my little if, cave. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you probably have to just stay stay low. Nobody has <laughs> those powers. No, no, I don't. Yeah, no one knows even how Drake has them either. Yep. <laughs> but we're going to be sending you to the Cooper Beach then from the Mario Kart Nintendo 64 game. And the next game you're going to be taking with you alongside wrestling is a game I mentioned that is a fighting game. And it's pretty much yep. the most famous fighting game of all time. It's right. the arcade just masterpiece that 
made so much money in the 80s. It's, I think it made like an equivalent of like $4 billion in profit over the years of it being both an arcade game and also a home console game. It's been released on every platform imaginable from the Amiga to your mobile phones to the Wii Virtual Consoles to being included in classics. And obviously this year was released on Switch as well. It first and uh, it first originally released back in 1991 in arcades worldwide, and it's had so many different versions. From the first version being the World Warrior to Super to Turbo to Turbo Super Street, so many crazy different versions. But the next game you're going to be taking with you, Jonathan, is Capcom's incredible Street Fighter Two. Yep, I'm pretty sure I've bought all the versions. I just keep buying this game over and over, depending. Do you on have what the Switch one? On. Uh, not that one yet, but that's the HD version, right? The HD remix, it seems to be. So I bought that back on the Xbox 360. Yes. So yeah, that was, and I and I never played it in the HD at all. Like I'd always go back to the original graphics because that's just that was the reason. It's one of the reasons why I got into animating pixel art. Uh, ah, okay. The game was just. It looks so beautiful. Uh, I played the original Street Fighter, Street Fighter 1, on holiday one time, and I think that at the time was really impressive, had larger sprites, but the leap between that game and Street Fighter 2 was so huge. Um, and, you know, I care about graphics and stuff, and I remember just playing it in the arcades, my cousin had come to visit through from Glasgow, and we just spend all our pocket money on it. I even, like, I guess this is a running theme, but I did skip school as well to to actually go and play Street Fighter 2. I got caught. That's how I remember it. Man, you're not, a good exa- you're not setting a good example. I know. It's for so... all these young children, impressionable children who want to work in the games industry. Or is that, the, is that the key? Is that the secret? Uh, is the secret uh, to do all this gaming research and then be oh, a very yeah. talented animator? I mean, that's, a lot of people like want to make games because they love it so much. And I think that's this definitely shows it. Um, but I, you know, I didn't just love playing games. I loved making games as well. And and I would go there to just, you know, just stand and look at the game. You know, I, I got caught, in fact, by my parents because I had a, a change of clothes underneath my school uniform, and they totally saw it. And I ended up just blabbing everything that I'd actually been skipping school for a few days to go down and play it. <laughs> and you know, I didn't have that much money, so I'd mostly play a little bit and watch it as well. And you know, there was I had a few f- other friends that we'd also skip school. That was quite bad but really it was just such a beautiful game and it's such a well-designed game and i'm sure it's been on your list before because it's such a popular game but really uh... it has but not as much as you'd expect obviously more recent versions like street fighter 5 and street fighter 4 have appeared as well okay this uh, this this game was the game that really changed it and i'm gonna say street fighter 2 i'm kind of including like the rest of the series because i played most of them, if not all of them. Uh, Turbo was the one that really it got the speed right. It's hard to play Street Fighter 2 after you've played Turbo. But, um, I mean, we have we have an arcade in downtown LA that it's like a, a bar, but it's an arcade as well, so it's got all these arcades and they have Street Fighter 2 Turbo um, on, like, that's the main game when you come in, and they actually, somehow they've hooked it up where they project the fight onto the bar in the background. They have two versions of the like they have two instances of the actual fight so if you're if you're fighting on street fighter 2 everyone in the bar can see it so you're really you got to be good you know and <laughs> i'm just thankful i've been playing this game for almost 30 years now because i'm okay you know i'm not great i remember specifically i think most... i know about that bar too and that bar has a lot of 
fighting game competitions. Yeah, yeah. So one you have a lot of good player. players who come to that bar. Yeah, I've never gone to the competition. I've really like it's just one of these ones where I can go in and I can drink and have somebody and also play Street Fighter, which is just like one of the best nights out ever. I pretty much whenever somebody visits, we take them at that bar so we can play Street Fighter, you know. Um, but yeah, it's just it's just one of these games that it just doesn't get old. There's something cathartic about just jumping in with a flying kick immediately to sweep. It's just it's the most basic thing. I'm not not really big on all the different combos, but it's just something else. Uh, you you can just do it forever. And I'm I'm not really competitive, so I wouldn't really play against other people. Unlike WrestleMania, where you know you play for the it doesn't matter if you lose, you still win because you had an amazing experience. I prefer just jumping on, finishing the game. You know, starting it, finishing it, beating yeah, beating arcade Bison, mode, and then going yeah. Uh, just love that, you know, and. One of the reasons why it's on the list as well, it's really important to me, is that I used to try and emulate it. It was definitely one of the first games where around the time when I was working with my Amiga back at home, I, I would just try and recreate a lot of the sprites. And, you know, it was, it was a huge inspiration. In fact, my brother, I've got two younger brothers, and I remember one of them went through a phase of just like petty theft, just stealing stuff, like sweets and things. And I remember one time he stole a, he stole like a, it was, it was like a book on all the moves that you can do in Street Fighter 2. It How was handy. essentially all the combos <laughs> and stuff. And it was handy because it helped me get better at Street Fighter. But also like they had screenshotted the game, every single move, every single frame of every move and oh, kind of shit. broke it down. I think it was like a, it might have been a special edition that came with a magazine or something, yeah. like, but it was an American magazine, so it was pretty rare. And it just had every single frame of every move for Super Street Fighter 2. That was the one. And so it had, the, you know, all the, the four new characters as well. And I was able to look at them and it really helped me learn a lot of the basics of animation just from looking at like, okay, so they have this little frame in between here and stuff, you know, it would tell you which frames that hit on and tell you how long it stayed there so that, you know, so you could build strategies and stuff. But for me, it was just amazing because a lot of this information is all freely available on the internet. Now you can, you can go to places and they'll, they'll break down like Street Fighter's kind of hitboxes versus where you can take damage and the timing and, you know, all these things. But that was pre-internet days. So I had this book and I was just able to draw my characters, you know, I remember trying to recreate a character like Blanca. I really I did I did one like Fei Long. He was my main guy, just a just a kind of a chap with like muscles, because that's what you draw when you're a kid, you know, just yeah. big muscles and he was like doing all these martial arts moves and I was animating them. And that was that was part of the um the bulk of the artwork that I sent up to DMA design when I first got when I, when I got brought up to the studio and stuff. So it was like, it was just a passion project. I made backgrounds of of fighting games and, and would place the characters on them and then just have them animated because back then there were no, there might have been, but I wasn't a privy to any engines that were out there. So I was just like animating my stuff as if it looked in a game and stuff, you know? Yeah. So that was, that was one of the main reasons that I, that I love that game. Amazing. You know? So tell me, like, as, you know, someone now who is an animator and who has experience with stuff like this, and, you know, you 
although maybe it's a little more generous these days than it was when you they were working with arcade machines and stuff like that in terms of like limitations and stuff like that what yeah. is like what is like the most impressive move in terms of animation in street it, fighter 2 street fighter 2 wow like what is my... like the, what is like the move that has like the animation frames where you're like fuck like how did they do that <laughs> i would say the it's not it's not Street Fighter 2, it's Super Street Fighter. It's like DJ's three-hit combo with his kicks. Just because they were much... Like, I could see the difference. I, I, I genuinely believe that Street Fighter 2 was drawn directly in a pixel art program. Or maybe, maybe it was drawn over images. But it looks to me like by the time they got to Super Street Fighter, they were, they were animating them on paper, first of all, and getting everything to look really good. And then they'd scan them and then draw over them. So I, I I definitely feel like that's the one that comes to mind. For Street Fighter 2, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I always remember the, the individual frames of um, Ryu's big roundhouse kick. You know, his heavy heavy kick when he's standing oh, right, far yeah, away. Like the sort of overhead swing almost. Yeah, that, that, was really, that was a really nicely drawn animation. So when I think about Street Fighter, I think about that one. That's, that's definitely the one that stands out. But the like you can tell that the art was so much better even by Super Street Fighter 2 although they didn't they didn't make it that it, they totally didn't fit with the other characters but i i seem to recall cuz a lot of the time i was playing this on the super nintendo like that was the thing that got me from spending all my money in arcades was when it came out in the super nintendo and from my perspective it looked like an arcade perfect conversion it wasn't at all but it looked so good, and I think they dropped a bunch of frames. That was one of the ways they saved memory, um, and also they might have scaled it as well. But they dropped a lot of frames, and I remember with every subsequent release, they'd actually add more of the arcade frames back in, so the animation just looked smoother and smoother. But they always had like I think the full frames for that big roundhouse kick. It was amazing, you know, it was so beautiful. And so I would just draw these. And at the time as well, I was. I had been doing martial arts, like I was big into Ninja Turtles when they were at their height. <laughs> Who wasn't? Oh, and the nineties. Yeah, it was so good, and I had been doing karate for um, three three years. Did karate? I got so far, but eventually, like, realized that my heart wasn't in it. But that's why Ryu just looks like he looks like the perfect video game character because he's not he's not a guy with like all these things, you know, like crazy hat and you know crazy colors and all these different things he's basically a guy in a karate suit with a red band he's the most simple design and i just i thought i still think he looks so good you know if i'm gonna play street fighter 5 now it's either it's ryo ken or it's gonna be guile like guile's still my main boy guile's my main boy too yeah. Still, I don't play much Street Fighter Five, but I play so much Street Fighter Four. Going, speaking oh, yeah. of, you know, your Wrestle, you know, your WrestleMania days. They, they Street Fighter Four was essentially the same deal for me, and uh, in university, and I missed so much university to play Street Fighter Four. It was wow. a, a crime for three years. How much I missed because of Street Fighter Four. <laughs> did they Did they have to sign you in? Um. No. I because we would we had a system where we had to sign in anyway in lectures and we were just if you were not going in you would just call someone and ask them to forge uh-huh. your signature on the sheet that's <laughs> smart i should have done that and then i could have played more wrestlemania 
You could have. You could have been the champion. You, your friend would have never insulted you so if you had that little bit of extra practice. It's crazy to think because fighting games are the ones that always astound me. Like animation is an incredible thing. And I, I, I love... I studied animation in college and I... Okay. I've always had a sort of a, a deep fondness for animation and being in university and having such a fascination with fighting games and getting into, you know, the frame data and stuff like that and all that kind of stuff. Um, like fighting games amaze me with their animation and that kind of thing. It, I don't know if you still feel the same about that. Like, have you looked at stuff like that? Like the one that stands out for me is like the Arc Systems Guilty Gear excerpt uh, yeah. thing with the the 2d 3d animation and obviously the upcoming dragon ball fighters game which just oh yeah like how the fuck do you do that <laughs> well yeah i saw dragon ball at e3 this year and that was definitely one of my standout games in terms of animation not because i mean i mean guilty gear i haven't played it i haven't looked too much about it but the thing i liked was more the art style the rendering um just to make it like they really made it look like 2D stuff, but I think Dragon Ball takes it a step further, and they're even animating it as if it's 2D. There, a lot of the uh, fighter intros are really frame stepped. So you know, you know yourself. Uh, I don't know if a lot of the viewers understand, but you know, in in CG animation, you're animating keyframes, and then it's the computer that interpolates in between the frames. Um, and so that's what makes CG animation a lot smoother than just classic 2D animation, whereas, and especially anime, which is super conservative, you know, they're really, they, if they don't need to use frames, they're not going to use them because they're on really tight schedules. Whereas um, Dragon Ball uses step frames, so they seem to, and I think Guilty Gear did as well though, but this does it better where they're actually, they're animating, they're posing every single frame. So they're not interpolating between the frames, certainly on the intros, and it just looks so good because every single frame is chosen by an animator. You could freeze frame that game, you know, pause the game, and you're going to see something that's been hand-created as opposed to virtually every other 3D game right now. Where you, pause yeah. it, you, you can pause it, and it's not going to be a great pose. You'll see characters, like, not looking great with their silhouettes and all that kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah, that Dragon Ball is really great. And I do, like, I haven't like I said, I haven't played Guilty Gear, but I've played a lot of Street Fighter 4, and I've picked up Street Fighter 5. haven't played it too, as much as Street Fighter 4, but yeah. yeah, definitely appreciated the animation in that. Incredible, like, fantastic. Just always amazes me. And um, there is a, speaking of sort of GDC talks, you yourself have done quite a number, and they've always been incredibly interesting. There was one about the Guilty Gear Exert, and I think they had the animation director for that yeah. game, and he was talking about how they they blended the two D three D style. Yeah, I think I might have seen that. If it's about yeah, if it's about the style, yeah, it was great. Ah, uh, it's so cool. You should check that out if you're interested in animation. Obviously, Jonathan, you do not need to because you're an animator, animating god. So you know everything's <laughs> I, fine. No man, I can always learn. I, I love watching the GDC talks. They make a lot of them free now, but um, we have access yes. to them through the studio. And as soon as the, as soon as GDC is done, I'll just for the next few months just go through as many as possible and ones that are not related to animation as well. So. Speak, actually, speaking of, I just remembered that the Cuphead, Cuphead is like the, you know, sort of been quite an interesting thing about animation. Cuphead's been yeah. in the in the news for some bad reasons recently, but we're not going to talk about that. But there is, the animation for Cuphead looks incredible. Yeah. Um, and there is, a, I think, a GDC talk went up about the animation process behind Cuphead as well. 
and I think yep. that's incredibly fascinating too. Oh yeah, yeah, I was there for that talk, and I, uh, it was just they're they're going into how they do it. I actually spoke to the animator. He he animates outside. He lives in Canada, and he animates outside um, his parents' holiday home or something. He can sit outside in his garden, and he brought his kind of he brought his table out, and he's animating on paper in the sun. It sounds like such a such a good life. I'm sure he doesn't do it all the time because he's because <laughs> he's living in Canada, but. But yeah, they're doing something really special there. I think um, that's that's one of these things. Though, I I find that interesting that um, everyone's interested in that game purely because of the animation, and that's something that you'll see a lot of um, a lot of indie games, you know, super experimental and stuff. But they they get picked up because of their art style, and that's how yes. you, that's how you can compete with AAA. That, yeah, that was. Jake Clark's animation there, yeah, he was he was doing some really cool stuff. Really nice guy as well, and he's one of the team that's doing that. And they're really endeavouring to try and make it look like the old Max Fleischer um, yes, animation absolutely. style, kind of back in the early days around pre Disney. I'm, I'm not sure. I think it's the sure 1930s. Yeah. I think that's the tagline. It's like a game from 1936 plus 70 years or something is like their tagline or something like that, okay. which is really yeah. interesting. But it's so fluid, which is in yeah. like that fluid, you know, perfect one frame added each time. That's incredible. Animation fascinates me. I'm sorry, I'm, di- I'm I'm getting off topic here. I'm incredibly fascinated by animation. So, but we need to talk more about some more video games. And okay. the next game we're going to talk about is a game that has... And I'm going to put it in Jonathan's words before we started the show. Crappy animation. <laughs> oh, man. Don't. <laughs> yeah. Almost no it's animation. It's not crappy. It's, it's simplistic for game aesthetical reasons. And I think, you know, once anyone hears the music and they know what game it is, they'll, I think they'll definitely agree. There's not much you really can say about the animation to this game. But I'm very interested to hear why you've chosen it. So how about we listen to some music for this next game? And of okay. course... Let's dive straight into it. So jumping in to the next game now, and um, we're not going to get as in-depth with animation this time, I don't think, unless we could talk about the sort of the uh, the sort of purpose of being about you know. I'm always interested in games that cut animation for game purpose, like whether they fast forward the animation or they cut frames out and that kind of thing, um, for sort of game necessity. But I don't think it really was a purpose decision by Notch to do such a thing in this game. Um, and this game obviously being the smash hit that alongside Street Fighter 2 was pretty much released 
on every platform in existence since its initial launch back in 2001, uh, 2001, 2011. It's, of course, the huge sandbox video game, Minecraft. Now, Jonathan, you've been in the games industry a long time now, so I'm always intrigued by people who are veterans of the industry who go and then choose Minecraft. They all sort of have different reasons, whether it's sort of a revolutionary thing and that kind of thing, or it's just pure fun. Why is it going with you? Um, I... One thing I love in games, like uh, one thing that you know I can say is a defining feature of a lot of games that I love is the ability to be creative. I really love, like in WrestleMania, you can customize your own character. I'm not just playing something that you know somebody else has done. A Street Fighter as well. I can be creative in the fact that I have this whole suite of moves at my disposal, so I can choose my style and play in that. And Minecraft is just like the quintessential game about creativity i mean i got i got into this game back when it was still like super early uh wasn't wasn't anywhere near complete and it was just like you download it from their site and it's like some tiny little java game and i would play it on my laptop because it doesn't require a lot of processing power i'm pretty sure the um the animation of the characters in this game is not animation at all it's just like procedural like the limbs are coded to swing. You know, there's nothing in here that isn't just code other than maybe some of the art, you know? It's yeah. super, super light, um, so that allows it to be huge. And there's just something magic about um, randomization in games, you know, procedural generation. When I know, so I've built my world, and I know when I'm going down a cave or you know, I'm, yeah, I'm in a cavern and I, or I'm just chipping away and it opens up to something. I know I'm probably the only person that's ever discovered that. You know, the chances of somebody else having the same world and being there are just huge. Because I'm not playing off online. I'm playing by myself. I'm just having adventures. So I just, there's something magic about that. And, you know, back in the day, it was, it you know, it was already becoming a phenomenon, but it wasn't that big, so there wasn't a lot of information. It was very hard. Like I started on PC, so it didn't have like a lot of the information as to how to craft. So every time I'd have two windows open and have the game, and I'd have the Wikipedia <laughs> wiki open and try to figure that out. I think they solved it much better for the console release, but it was just awesome. And sometimes you'd happen upon other things, but yeah, just going off on adventures that you know are in a video game, but somebody has not ever, somebody hasn't even created it. Like the the creator of that game has never been in that cave. You know, there's something magic about that, and I'll. I genuinely believe, like, I've played great great games with shitty animation. I've played shitty games with great animation as well. And I, I learned a long time ago that, like, at, at some point, you're, you can't do good animation to the expense of a good game. Like, if it if it doesn't, you know, if the game isn't good, your, your art is not going to save it. But I, I would say that Minecraft's art style is very consistent. So it does actually look good. Although, you know, you can say it's not a great looker it looks very consistent and so the world is totally believable i could read the world i can understand what's going on so i think as a game developer i appreciate those elements you know i mean i've heard people say that in just as game developers in general they they kind of they've seen how the sausage gets made so they don't really appreciate a lot of stuff in games but for me it's always added to it i love when i can see okay this is a 
you know, this is clearly some procedural generation going on with a bunch of set rules, so you don't have crazy floating islands. Uh, it's clearly setting setting some rules so that you'll have, you know, certain objects will appear in caverns at certain depths and things like that. And the game design, although they have a lot of blocks, that really don't make sense. Like they're super rare, and they they do nothing other than color your color your carpet or your your rule blue. Uh, they, they have this general thing overall that makes sense, which is the deeper down you go in a cave, the better the stuff, but the more danger. And you've got to get back up to your home to save it and to, to place it. Because um, although I say I, I like creating in games, I never play the create mode in this game. I don't find it interesting. There's no there's no fun in just having an infinite amount of blocks and making like making the Starship Enterprise. That's not really why I play this. You I definitely because... you definitely sound like the person who really strives to that adventure that that oh, yeah. want to have a purpose, a sense of direction. Like even when you were talking about, you know, playing Street Fight, it wasn't about being competitive and just playing over and over again. It was like beating the computer and getting in there and like taking it down and that kind of thing. Like having a sense of purpose to do something. Yeah, it was, and Street Fighter is just something you can play to kill some time. This is a game that would just swallow me whole. You know, I'd be up till two, three in the morning on adventures, you know, systemic stories that I've made myself. And the one I remember that will always stick in my mind is the time I decided to bake a cake. And I was just like, okay, that's that can't be that difficult. You know, I've got to get sugar, I've got to get milk. Found a cow, get the milk. Couldn't find any sugar cane. Went off on a big adventure in a boat and took ages trying to get to somewhere that had sugar cane, but had to bring it back to my house. Um, and then you start growing your own and stuff. And I, I can't remember the other elements that are required to make a cake. But basically, I, I think I started in the evening after work and finished like five in the morning um, <laughs> on this huge adventure. I'd made a cake. And once you make one cake, you've got to make several cakes and ended up like just, just going through caves. Owning a bakery. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, once you start a cake, it's like, okay, what else can I make? And uh, I, now that I've, I'm growing my own um, sugar cane, I've got to grow other things and started a, started a farm or whatever. Maybe it was before farming really, but, uh, I remember it ended with me in a cave, like making the, the the classic mistake of digging underneath me and fell into a whole bunch of lava. And you know that was the end of that adventure. But oh, holy crap, no. it was just something, something to remember. I mean, I saved it, so I still had my cake. It was okay, but you lose everything else that you've got on you. You know. Yeah. Um, and it's it's just <laughs> like I like stories and games, but I really appreciate the ability that games have for you to make your own story yeah systemic as, sort of yeah. creation allow the player to just experience stuff and then be like oh my god like what and then talk to others and be like oh when i was doing this and this this happened and like did it happen to you no i've never had that happen to me before yeah. and it's always so amazing to yeah, like, share those experiences purely the emergent nature of it. Although, I must admit, I don't know too many other game developers that are really playing Minecraft, but uh, you know, I was pretty much the only one that I knew, but really loved it. And, uh, you know, you said it was released on every platform, like Street Fighter. I've probably bought a lot of those, not every one, but <laughs> I've, I got it on the, hey, on the consoles and stuff. Both of them are on the Switch now. You can play them any way you want until any hour of the day. Yep. Yeah, it's released... I think it released on the 3DS yesterday as well. Oh yeah, so yeah. 3D. Straight after the direct, yeah, you could you could yeah. download it and play it in 3D. Wow, 
yeah. yeah it truly is on every platform now that'd be crazy um yeah it's just it's just a magic game um i've played it on the like with an oculus uh vr a few years back back when it was super early and stuff and that just blew my mind you know i really i was like this is like vr is definitely something it made me sick as a dog but it was like you could tell that there was something something there and stuff the know? sense of scale for the blocks must yep. be amazing you don't oh, think yeah. about that but like the blocks are so big to the ratio of how big your character is that in vr yeah. that sense of scale must be massive oh yeah i remember standing on the edge of a precipice looking down in a cavern and you know just a big Fuck valley that. it was just <laughs> it was it was crazy you know and it's, it's actually ironic it's funny that like i love all these games i played it initially on pc and then on the consoles like played it on um, xbox and ps3 got it on the ps4 i got it on mobile as well and i don't play so much anymore but ps4 is one that i really sunk a lot of time on but all the console versions are made by my old team back in dundee so that's technically the game that no i would have been working on yeah i would have been working on this game if i had never left scotland probably which <laughs> is really sad as well like that, that's what would have happened if i if i did you know not get kicked out, kicked out of college but didn't move on I'd probably be doing this, and there's no animation in it at all. You know, I think it's for the best. I mean, you wouldn't have enjoyed it as much, and um, you yeah. know, you wouldn't have done all the amazing projects you've done. So I think it worked out. But it's kind of sweet that you know you have that sort of connection to Minecraft in two different yeah, it's ways. Funny. It's lovely when you have stuff like that. It's so funny. I actually, I have like I'm not a crazy fan. I wouldn't go to Minecon, but I did watch some videos from Minecon, and it's all my old teammates in Scotland like giving panels to like four or five year olds. It's so surreal. It's like, and they're like, one of the boys is like going through the crowd with a microphone and having to get them, and they're they're having to answer the most like just puerile questions you know just rubbish <laughs> questions it's like gdc for kids it's so funny but you know i play the game i love it too so, so I, I would love to be in the crowd and ask the questions too you know excellent well we're going to move on now to a game that i know quite a bit about and has appeared on the show many a time and i'm very interested to talk to you a little bit about the animation for this game and how you sort of feel about that and you can be as harsh or as praiseworthy as you like um but let's definitely listen to some really cool music from this next game and of course let's dive straight into it jumping into the next game now and we're switching from you know building stuff and creating things and having a sense of adventure to having another sort of 
huge open world in which you can pretty much do anything, but to a sort of different extent. The next game is the Juggernaut action-adventure video game that was developed by Rockstar North and published by Rockstar Games, released back in September of 2013, which is crazy to think that in two days' time from this recording, that this game initially released four years ago, um, which makes me feel like my 20s have just disappeared before I could even think. I'm released pretty much on most platforms as well, PlayStation 3, Xbox 360, PlayStation 4, Xbox One, PC, and um, still being updated. The, the GTA Online is being updated all the time. It is the huge, huge game that is Grand Theft Auto V. Jonathan, why are you taking GTA V with you? So, just for the record, I did not know that you worked on this game before I added it, so I'm Ooh. not just sucking up. But it is. I wonder if anyone off. actually does that. I doubt they do that. I doubt. I very, very much yeah. doubt they do that. <laughs> so this has been on the list before. Um, I. It's just one of my favorite games ever. I still play it. Still play it a lot. And in fact, I bought it on the PS3. No, on Xbox. Then I bought it on the PS4. And I don't know. Like, which element did you work on then? I worked m- predominantly on the online. Okay, that's great. Because that's what I was going to say. It's mostly online that's what that's what i'm into like that's the nice thing. i, I fin- finished the story on um on xbox and then got into the online and it's it's pretty amazing i was able to transfer my character from the xbox 360 to the ps4 because yes as you know it's through um rockstar social club which is and, a pile of shit but yes oh uh, yeah well you hardly use that so <laughs> I, I really. um social really, club is such a ball ache <laughs> yeah oh really um, but yeah, it's just such a magic, a magic experience. The online thing, purely because I because I've moved around so much around the world. So in Edmonton, like from Scotland to Edmonton, to Montreal, down to California, uh, I've got one of my brothers moved out to Australia as well. I play with him a lot. I play with my friends in Montreal a lot, um, and we play the online. And it's basically for me, it's a Skype where you can do stuff so yeah that's that's what it is for me it's a skype where i can chat with my brother and i have a great relationship with him and a lot of our he's he's five years younger than me but we always played games together back in scotland yeah and i feel like i almost have the same relationship as i did as a kid but now even though he's like the other side of the world because we we're playing together on a regular basis the time difference makes it difficult but it's like it's quite often that we find ourselves like that's the game we jump into because it's the sign of a good open world or a good online game is for me i like to load the game up first then decide what i'm going to do you know uh, just like minecraft um just like any kind of open world that gives me enough things to do i'll jump in there and then i'll decide okay today i'm gonna go off not bake a cake but today I'm going to like sell this car to get money because I read that there's some new thing. And meanwhile, my brother's there and he just shows up, you know, and he's physically there and I could speak to him. But, you know, I know this is nothing new for a lot of online games, but I, I've never been an MMO guy. I don't play, I don't play competitively online and those games are too shallow to me anyway. Like you go in and all you can do is shoot people. I love that in this game I can go in and I can, I, I have my apartment. And it's funny because 
the one of the coolest things about this is I'm in Santa Monica here in California and my apartment is roughly in the same place as where I'm actually living right now so it's super it's awesome you know I actually <laughs> got this game it's it's crazy it's the apartment in my in GTA is much better than my apartment in real life though yeah much bigger but it's it's literally the same same area in Santa Monica because GTA 5 is such a great um you know, facsimile of yeah. what, what California, well, what this part of Southern California like, is. You know, I think I, I think I've mentioned on the show prior, um, but I've never been to California. Like uh, in terms of that area, I've never been to Santa Monica. I've been to E three, but I've never been to like that area. Okay. And it's so funny having worked on that map for so long, having started out doing art sweeping on that map and getting to know it so intimately for like the first year that. I started watching the TV show Californication. I don't know if you've ever okay. seen it, but the opening credits, the opening credits are just basically pans of above Santa Monica. Yeah. And I can, I can literally look at it. And I'm just like, I know where that is. I know where that is. I know how to get there from there. And I'm, I'm looking at it. And yeah. I'm like, I know this place. I've never even been there. And it's all because of this video game that is almost one-to-one recreated it perfectly. It's incredible. Oh yeah, that's that's one of the funny things. Like whenever you see, you know, a quick montage of LA, they always show you downtown LA. They show you the Hollywood sign, and then they show you the the Santa Monica Pier with the the Ferris wheel on it. Yeah, and th- those are the three things. And you know, GTA is a much smaller version, but everything's in the same location to the point, like relative to each other, that I knew. So this is this is the funny thing is that I got GTA before I was moving down to California, and it helped me like learn the space before <laughs> I even got there. You know, I think I played this game. I also played Ellie Noir, which is a, a a great version of what it was like in the past. And some of those buildings are still there, which is fantastic. But this one, this will this will kind of make you a bit scared. But I was actually learning to drive as well before I came down to California because I'm from Scotland. I didn't need to drive my whole life, even in in Montreal. Montreal is a walking city and stuff. And so knowing that I was coming to California, I had to learn to drive. And so I was literally learning not how to drive in GTA, but I was learning the rules of traffic in GTA. I don't drive in real life. <laughs> don't worry. I don't drive in real life like I do in GTA, but I was learning how traffic works and that type of thing at the same time as I was learning everything to the point that when I moved down here, it was just my wife is so sick of me saying like, that's just like in GTA. Like they have so many little <laughs> details that are just I'm driving along Sunset Boulevard and I see there's a restaurant that's set in an old train car and that is in GTA 5. You know, small details like that and it's in the right place although everything's you know, just spread out. And then you drive up the coast of being up the Big Sur and that is very much in GTA 5 as well. So there's this double layer to it. There's the online just with my friends but also it really helped me get my bearings when I moved down here. Uh, that's in- it's so incredible that games can do that. Like let alone you know yeah. just GTA, but other games that have recreated spaces um, and stuff like that. And just amazing to take those experiences from video games and like apply them to the real world. And and uh, it's incredible how far games have come. You know, from that sort of oh, yeah. the days of playing WrestleMania, where you have the you know you're you're fascinated with wrestling and you're like this is like the real thing. Like you know it's got the <laughs> yeah. it's got the atmosphere. It's got all that kind of stuff. And then you know 
fast forward 20 years to GTA 5 where it's you know almost a one-to-one -one recreation of this incredible city that is very uh, you know distinct and yeah. it, it carries over that which is amazing so when you play like GTA Online and stuff what are the kind of activities you like doing considering that game has you know an unholy amount of things to do what are the kind of things that you do with your brother in the game Okay, so I never do like the death matches where you have to load in and you just start shooting each other because I find that doesn't take advantage of the whole space. Um, we started off playing in a lot of the missions where it's just like, you know, get to this place, oh, okay. steal, steal this stuff, kill yeah. a bunch of people, drive over. They're very brutal. I mean, you only get, if there's a group of five of us, you only get one extra life to share between you. So they're very, very difficult. Uh, but they're a lot of fun. Um, what I do now is my brother, it's funny because he's my younger brother, but he's my boss. So he's the CEO. He's got his own company and I'm, I'm basically a lackey for him and we'll just we'll <laughs> run around the place and making him money because it's 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 such a great comment on capitalism as well it's like once you've got money you can start making so much money and i've never i'm, I'm like a cheap scotsman i'll never spend money in an online game to get ahead that's part of my game as well is to like see what i can do to not spend any real money. build yourself up Oh yeah, so I've never actually bought any of the, the credit cards or anything with real money. I'll just try and get stuff, you know, and then sell things and work with him. But yeah, that's pretty much the, the CEO stuff. And it's just basically going around, just in, enjoying the sites, but catching up with him, seeing what he's doing. Um, a lot of the things I'll do, like I have great memories of, you know, like important things that happened in my life from a distance while in GTA. Like I remember jumping in, Actually, this is Red Dead, but it's got the same thing. Like one time I was playing Red Dead, and you know, my I've got two brothers, and the two, the three of us were all playing, and we're all riding as horse, you know, cowboys. And my, my middle brother told me that he was going to have a baby, and that we were both my other mother brother and I were going to be uncles and stuff. Uh... It was awesome, and it was just funny because we're like we're just three cowboys like i remember yeah. we were on top of a top of a hill that's where i learned i was going to be an uncle for the first time and it just looks like the three amigos or something you know yeah um and so it's got a lot of that like i've had times where um i jump into a game two of my friends are there and they're just driving around the highway and i'm wondering what's going on so i'd hop in a helicopter fly over to them and they stop and then we kind of like then we join the group chat or whatever it is and I get in the car and turns out one of my buddies just broke up with his girlfriend and they're going out for a drive and they're just talking it through, you know, <laughs> while driving around the circumference of the entire GTA 5, you know. Um, another friend, I think he he had like an altercation with a girlfriend. Where he, like, this is pretty bad, but like she was pretty violent. Okay. And he, like the police were called and she came up and he got he got put in handcuffs uh he's telling me the story uh he got put in handcuffs and then the neighbors explained that it was her that was doing it and they took her away and he's telling me this while we're both sitting in my apartment in gta we're both sitting on the couch you know just having a heart to heart about like this crazy wow. thing that happened to him you know and like i love that element like the, the running around shooting is fun but it's the the just sitting doing things you know it's kind of like it's kind of like what playstation home should have been yeah absolutely awful. yeah no yeah you're absolutely right it's funny because when we were you know when we were working on it 
it, it, I, it, it came up so many times about, you know, the sort of, what does it, what does it feel like? And we would obviously test big groups. We'd have, you know, the 32 players and you'd all get together and you'd all be waiting to test something or to, you know, start a mission and make sure everyone was together. And everyone would be wearing their different outfits and everyone would have different tattoos and everyone would have different cars. And you could see all these different personalities shining through of all the people that you work with and the kind of things. And it was like oh, yeah. super cool. And that is the exact exactly the kind of thing that you know playstation home should have been or something you know second life and that kind of thing um yeah. that's crazy that's super cool that's so cool that you have those experiences let alone from a game i worked on but just a game in general yeah. like i feel like games can do that they have the power to do that kind of thing and that, that is really cool that's so cool totally. it's, it's it's a shame this is one of my constant frustrations in game development is that those are the things i care about uh, I really care about the non kind of action parts, the non-violent. I care about like the moments, like even in a, a linear story like Uncharted, I love the moments if you've played it when he's in his home. I love yeah, walking so through good. somebody's yeah, walk, walking through somebody's apartment and you know grabbing a beer from the fridge is so much more interesting to me in a game than sneaking through an enemy base uh, where everyone when they see me is going to try and kill me that is just that hu- but the thing is that has to be done you can't ship a game that's just about being in an apartment you have to well you can but it's not going to be a, a big triple a game you know um, no it's incredible but, because it allows yep it allows you know creators like you yourself and and stuff like that to be able to play around a bit more as well you know you have we have these formulaic things yeah. like sneaking through an enemy base and it's like well we have to have this and this and this and this because otherwise you know it doesn't conform to the idea of a level of sneaking through someone's base but you know if we take a moment to be like well this is this character's house so you know we've done a lot with this character but what would his house be like and that kind of thing yeah. and then you you get the player to sort of quiet down and really sort of become on the same wavelength as the game and also the creators of the game and take those quiet moments and and really sort of digest everything that's around you in the environment which i think is really something that i kind of agree is lacking in video games a little bit yeah stuff, I mean, that, stuff that gives more think, character uh, yeah but the, i totally believe that the reason why is because it's hard enough just to make a game that's just about the actual gameplay it's so difficult just to get out of the door that yeah you're really fortunate if you can also do these other things. And like GTA Online has this whole single player, but I guess you've you also had a really big team that could focus on, on the online stuff. And they've just added to it over yes. years after the game shipped. Yeah. Once they Whereas, realized how much money that thing was making, oh, oh yeah, yeah, the team got big. <laughs> oh, yeah. Good, good. Hope it keeps, keeps going until Red Dead comes out. I'm and sure I hope Red it will. Dead has I think a lot even... of the same. I think it will even surpass Red Dead. It has such a high... Well, you know, I haven't been there in nearly two and a half years, and even at the time I left, the the player base was still concurrently massive. So, you know, and it's players like you who have those experiences that make it so special, and it's really cool to have a game that is an open world that allows you the freedom to do all these things, and then you use it the way you want to use it without the game telling you what to do. It's just you take your time or you do all the things you want to do get all the cash together or you know you have those incredible moments it's amazing yeah absolutely fantastic well i think it's about time we move on to the next game then um and it's a game i don't really know too much about uh, at all okay. in fact when you uh when you sent me your list i initially thought it was a different game and um i was very very surprised because the game i thought it was is a very uh 
mediocre title, I think, is a generous word for that game. But I don't really know too much about the game that you were actually referring to either. So I'm very interested to hear if I can even find any music or anything relating to this game, because it goes way back to 1987. So let's listen to something, and then, of course, let's dive straight into it. jumping into the next game now we're switching it back so we've gone back and forth between the sort of eras in the 90s and the 2000s and you know games of recent with gta 5 and stuff and now we're going to fly all the way back to the sort of start of the zx spectrum and the the commodore 64 and the amstrad cpc and stuff like that with a game that came out in 1987 it's a sequel to a game called saboteur um, where players control a sister of a ninja um amazing but um the second game is of course called saboteur 2 avenging angel and it was published by durell software and designed by claire clive townsend who um is very famous for making games in that era but i have no idea what this game is so please jonathan take it away and tell me why are you taking saboteur 2 okay i had to put this on there this is not a game that i would play repeatedly now because it's it's, but it's not just a nostalgia thing. Um, this is a game that was so important to me back then. Like like I said earlier, we, the Spectrum was made in Dundee. And so a lot of people had them, like my family, like different members had them and stuff. And the way it worked was uh, essentially you had a tape and we'd be copying games back then. So you had multiple games. Uh, you'd stick the tape in and it would load up. And because you didn't know exactly where on the tape the game started... You pretty much you'd play one game, and then the next time you loaded your, you know, loaded it would load something else. So you'd play a constant sequence of games, uh, and then go back to the start. So Saboteur Two was definitely the standout game that I think had a lot of game design elements that I'm not seeing right now, but it, I I just loved at the time, and I I love them whenever they crop up. So, but just to go back, the the first Saboteur was like. I, one of the first games that I played, and it was basically you're a ninja, and who, like in the eighties, like ninjas are just the coolest thing in the world. <laughs> yes, still are, still are now, yeah. but yeah, in the eighties, definitely. Oh yeah, like and so you were this this male ninja who would sneak into, and this is Saboteur One. You sneak into like an enemy base because <laughs> I wasn't bored of it by then, and you had to <laughs> steal something and get out. But the the base was big, you know. It was a lot of individual screens, you know. As you got to the end of one, it would it would just go into the next one, um, and you'd just steal steal an element and get out. And you always came in from the same. It was like a, a a dock where you'd come in on a little tiny little boat, and then you'd 
jump into the climb up the pier and then go along and then you had to find the item and go and every time you finish the level you got a code for the next level um, and you had to do something else so you had to find a secret disk with a password on it and also turn off a computer to open a door that would allow you to escape you always escape from the same place in a helicopter and it looked like shit you know it was just these are back in the days where there was literally no animation yeah and then just a few frames and there was only like two colors on the spectrum you'd have black and then whatever the background was whereas saboteur 2 came out and you were this girl that would start above the enemy base and the enemy base was massive the only way you could get a scale of it was during the loading screen so you see the character and she was this awesome ninja with like she had her mask off with long hair and i think a motorbike as well because that's you'd always escape on a bike instead of a chopper this time but it had a in the background it had a picture of the the base and it was just this huge like castle like thing that was on top of a mountain that had a whole suite of caves underneath and it was so many individual screens that that was the only way that you could get um, some kind of concept of the whole world so it was a really massive game for the time even now uh kind of like kind of like metroid without the awesome game design but one of the coolest things was you would start on a hang glider above the um above the base so you're just going i think from right to left all the way along and you decide at which point you want to jump off the hang glider and you'd fall a bit and land on a certain part of the map and then you had to work your way through and you know you could totally it was hardcore you, you could totally screw it up and jump off and fall the wrong bit and fall all the way down miss the entire place you know fall down the side of the cliff and then you know you're waiting all these screens and then you die at the end but amazing usually yeah it was just super hardcore and i think i've only seen that kind of mechanic i remember there was a medal of honor that had a multiplayer game where you could you know choose where you were parachuting into i know player unknown's battlegrounds is yeah that, doing that that's now. the one i was thinking of right now yeah yeah, that's the the modern equivalent, but it's such a such a good way to just get you to start in the game. And it was a single player game, um, same as Saboteur One, but it just it looked much better. Your character looked so badass, you know, and she could run. She had a whole variety of moves compared to the time where most games were platformers. You could jump. She could like run, somersault, uh, crouch down. She could do like sweep kicks. She could do high kicks, flying kicks as well. It was a different move, and the the whole place was just like all these autonomous kind of androids that would go around and they were like if they saw you they, they would just screw you up like they had flamethrowers they could if you got close they'd kick you but mostly they would just fire their flamethrower if you were near them so you're mostly whenever you encounter somebody you're running away from them because the first game i think just had policemen whereas this one had robots i guess that was probably you know it was, it was a morality thing like you weren't killing people um the first game had dogs. This game had black panthers, which is also <laughs> super 80s, you know. Had panthers that would chase you. And so a lot of it was like just running from black panthers and big, really tall robots. And it was just it was just something magic about that kind of game where I could choose the insertion point and then again, like Saboteur 1, every time you'd finish, like you'd, you'd have to find something. I think the first level was just get out. So you get down... Um, go through the world, you figure out your way and there was all these ladders and stuff and you'd go down to the lower level, into the caves and jump on your awesome motorbike that just happened to be there waiting for you and you just race it out and you're like, you know, in my head I was smashing through 
gates and everything while people were shooting at me. And it was very uncharted, but it just looked like ass because it was too deep. <laughs> but in your imagination, it was uncharted. Oh, yeah. it, was, it was amazing. Um, but the, the cool thing was, like, whenever you finish that, so you finish the first level and it gives you a code again to go back in. But this time, it was like, get to this place, turn off the missile silo that's going to be launched from this evil enemy lair and then get out and then the next one was steal the computer data turn off the missile silo so it just made you explore it more and more and yeah eventually you got to knew it got to know it so I, I really knew it quite intimately and it was just like again it was like a big open level where i could decide where to go but you'd figure out like the most efficient route and back in those days like that was just something that really made a huge impression on me and it's still got elements of gameplay that like, I would like to see more of. Like, I'd like to see games that, rather than just constantly progressing through different levels, give me one level, but give me make it super complex because that was complex for the time. Make it super complex. Make it like with doors that I can open in one mission that I can't in another. You know, I can explore different things, and then. You know, I just constantly go in and I'd, rather than making a really long game, make a narrow game uh, that's super deep and yeah. complex. And that's that's why, like, although Minecraft is huge and massive, it could be super small because of all the, the emergent gameplay that you have. Yeah. That's why I think it still works on console, you know? Yeah, it's, it's super interesting. We don't have the sense of, like, freedom and being able to explore usually has to transfer to translate well translate to being open world i think is the the sort of gen, gen general thinking behind stuff like that like you know open space to be able to explore and do stuff yeah. we don't have many games where it's like a building like a big building and it's like yeah um the only game i can really think of is uh recently is let it die which was that okay. weird pseudo 51 game where you would um climb like a like a like a Japanese subway essentially like yeah. to the top of a building and you would explore the building but the problem with that was I think every time it was procedurally generated so you weren't actually learning the building uh, itself so it was different yeah so it was always different but I I do like the idea of I like movies that take place in like one area like the raid uh, if you, I don't know if right. you've ever seen the raid no I haven't seen it but it often gets referenced for but, the violence yeah it's but it's it's a movie that takes place in one building and dread dread is very okay. similar and they're both very relatable uh, movies but everything takes place within one building and it's incredible because you get to know that space really intimately but it still feels yeah. different as the film progresses on because you're learning new areas and stuff that changes all the time and having something that having like an environment that you know really well that changes over time the more actions you do would be really yeah. cool you're constantly going back into it and finding more i'd love to see stories that do the same where it's like my story can be started and finished in two hours but the next time i play it the characters have been mixed up or their you know their roles have been mixed up or their what their uh, aims are and their objectives are different so they'll interact with me but if it's super deep and systemic then i could get I could just keep playing this two-hour game over and over. You know? Yeah, that's kind of why I like Street Fighter. <laughs> it's, it's, I keep playing this small game over and over, but every time you play it, it can be slightly different depending on like the a game that takes place, like like a game that starts with an event, and then right. depending on the action of that event, like the the rest of the next two hours takes place in like the different parallel universes in which <laughs> yeah. everything happens on depending on which action you took at that beginning event. That, I think that would be cool. 
Yeah, I think a good game analogy for that is uh, Clue or Cluedo in the UK. You know, that's a, a they randomly choose like who is the um, who's the actual murderer and where it happens and the the murder weapon. And every time you play it, you know, you've got to figure out who it is. So it's a it's a replayable game that you can figure out you know who did the murder and who done it would be really fitting this like die hard is a great example it's funny when you say buildings and i haven't played this new let it die but die hard is is a great example a die hard game that was like that there was a die hard the like, playstation die hard game trilogy. Yeah. the die hard yeah, trilogy that was yeah. amazing amazing <laughs> game but that wasn't the systemic game but i do love the detail that they had in their world it was fantastic so yeah that's that's why i love this game and then you know, it was a huge inspiration by the time, you know, you couldn't, it was very difficult to do art on the spectrum at the same time as this. But when I was able, with my Amiga later on, Saboteur 2 is one of the games alongside Street Fighter that I tried to emulate. And because it was more simple, I could, like, I completely reanimated Saboteur 2. I, I redrew the character, um, to give her more moves. Um, I, I really enjoyed drawing a lot of the tiles because a game like Saboteur it was super clunky, but they had to, you know, it was made by tiles, just like a lot of 2D games at the time. So yeah. I was figuring out how to draw individual background elements that I could then repeat, you know, how to make repeating tiles. And it really helped me figure out a lot of, you know, game development style art and animation stuff uh, that, again, helped me get up to a game studio and and then, and then get rid of my, my computer afterwards and change my mind. Because <laughs> I was too late for 2D. Who would have thought it would come back? Too late for 2D, and now we live in an era where, you know, indie games are basically surviving thanks to the ability to make 2D pixel art and stuff like that quite easily and uh, without the graphically intensive 3D. <laughs> It's funny though. It's it's ironic that I think uh, 2D art is a lot more difficult to make than 3D nowadays. I think, especially to, if you're an indie, I think to look good is more difficult. I think the 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 accessibility makes it easier to you know hand draw a few sprites, yeah. whereas to make like a and rig like a 3D model takes a lot more. Um, but to make it look good, you obviously have to be an artist. Oh, yeah. And yeah. for someone who is like me, who's making like a 2D game a 2D indie okay. game who doesn't have the greatest of art ability, I have to work within the limitations of what my boundaries are. So, like, my characters are all blocks. They're all squares. And then for I've shoehorned story purposes into that. But, you know, it allows me to be experimental with the animation as well because, like, they, they, they cartwheel and they jump, but they're blocks. So they have to do it in sort of <laughs> okay. unique ways. And it's kind of interesting to do that. But... Because it's 2D, it allows me to experiment a lot more than, you know, having to, like, rig a character or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it's, you need, like, a variety of skill sets, I think, just to get a character up up and running. Um, it's a, That's a great way to work, though, like, uh, working with blocks, because, like, the hard part is not really the art. The hard part is getting finding the fun and, mm. and you know... If your game is successful, then for the sequel you can totally change it. I mean, Nidhogg is a great example of that. Like the game was a lot of fun, but holy crap, the pixel art in that was ugly. It was so ugly. And Which is weird because a lot I, of people think the second one looks ugly. It, it kind of does, but I find it has a charm to it, and it fits the game. I played it last year, uh, Nidhogg 2 at PSX, and yeah. it was so much fun. <laughs> and the character really looks like. Um, 
looks like Homer Simpson. That's yes. what I thought was yeah. fun about it. <laughs> it has like a weird so shaped head with bulging eyes. It does look a lot yeah, like except, Homer. <laughs> but he's naked. It's like two naked Homer Simpsons just <laughs> kicking the shit out of each other. I mean, who doesn't want to play that game? It's a it's a great great way. But that's that's totally the way I would I work um, even on Uncharted. Uh, I will I will bang stuff out super fast. Like it doesn't need to look good, and then you get the gameplay working. Because I I don't know if I explained. I specifically work on the interactive cinematic parts, so not the not the gameplay of Drake running around, and not the full cinematics where they are just like super beautifully rendered, but you have no gameplay. It's like all the I work on the the bits where you're put into a scene. It's a one-off. You still have some degree of control, and that's super fun. But we don't just go and mocap that stuff. We go and like we have to just knock it out. And I, I make it look like it's pretty much pose to pose, characters sliding around. We're figuring out if it's going to be fun before we even go to mocap. And that's the way I think all game development should be handled. Like just previs, prototype, and then only once you're happy, go and shoot that yeah, stuff. Yeah, instead know? of wasting loads of time and energy on something that doesn't look great yeah. afterwards just like make it be experimental like a lot of people don't understand like you you want it to be correct but unless you experiment you don't know what looks good or and you you may make something that looks good but and then you'll never know if you can make something that's better which is always interesting like i feel like you've invested too much yeah you've invested too much and you don't want to change it you're like well it looks good now i like it but you take what you learn and then you know you experiment a little more and you're like oh wow fuck this is way better and you're like ah haha experiments work (laughs) yeah i will say like the caveat is at naughty dog we definitely do take things to final polish and then sometimes we're like you know what it would be better if we did this and we'll throw it away and redo it completely (laughs) and that's that's very like you know yourself like you shouldn't be precious about your work but it's very hard it's different than triple a studios up, you know? that's for sure oh man yeah well you should never be precious like but yeah you try as long as possible not to get invested in something yeah sometimes you do and sometimes you still got to change it because you can make it better afterwards yeah and it's yeah it's one of those things it's the same it it applies differently to the two the sort of different styles of how you make games you know triple a studios where you have lots of people working together whose work has to come together and like an accumulation of everyone's work and then you know some of it doesn't fit correctly or some of it doesn't work right and like your part might be amazing but it doesn't quite gel with the rest of like what is going on in the game which can be difficult and then as an indie developer well then you know if you're a small team well everything sort of relies on each person's position so it's a little different but yeah you learn as you go along i think is the important part about that <laughs> totally totally well, it's a great way to learn well we're going to move on to the next game now cuz uh we still have three games left to talk and i think you're uh, i think oh, you're goodness. just delaying going to this uh, going to this wonderful island that you've chosen <laughs> yeah i guess so it's pretty scary <laughs> but i'm absolutely loving every moment of this you are so passionate about games Jonathan. i love it so much you are the perfect Final Games guest, so positive, and I'm very excited to talk about the next game, because the next game is a game that has appeared on the show before, and it appeared quite a lot at the beginning of when the show started, but since then, it's been a while since I got to talk about this next game, and it's a game that I think so many people love. It's a, I want to say cult classic, but I think it's more popular than that now. And um, I think in tandem with the fact that The Last Guardian is now a game that is officially fucking released and been out and people have played. It's real. It's crazy. It's real. Yep. It's amazing. So why don't we listen to 
some beautiful, beautiful music from this next game. And of course, let's dive straight into it. So, of course, jumping into the next game now, if you didn't recognize the wonderful music, it's a game developed by SE Japan Studios and directed by the one and only Fumita Ueda-san. It released originally back on the PlayStation 2 in 2005, and it's an action-adventure game where you truly do adventure and explore forth unknown lands and meet, meet incredible creatures known as Colossus or Colossi. It is the wonderful Shadow of the Colossus. So, Jonathan, I think many people who are fans of this game will know why you're going to take it with you, but why are you personally taking it? Well, I'd played Ico, and that was that was an amazing game. You know, it had you know a world that it, it just seemed so believable and things, but it also had like some really cool technology that was pushing the the PlayStation 2 at the time, and it was just, it was so, so nice. And when this game came out, it was just, it had so many different technical achievements. Uh, I mean, not to the point that I didn't, you know, I was just um, seeing it from a game development perspective, like I really fell in love with the world again. But this was one of the most amazing leaps in terms of animation technology that I've ever seen. It had so many things in one game wrapped up that it actually became one of the the reasons why I started my blog. You know, I started a blog on animation to just collate information about game animation and I think at the time after this game came out I found um uh breakdowns that were like uh, the the team has been really good about sharing a lot of their their information with the with the Japanese industry after whenever they ship. In fact, I recently just found one on The Last Guardian as well. But in Shadow of the Colossus, they had this great breakdown of all the tech, and I was kind of I'd been in games long enough that I've kind of figured out what was going on. But they did so many cool things, like um, just the horse was beautiful, but it had like awesome IK going on to manage not just the feet and how they were always placed on the world, but it would actually modify the angle of the horse so it didn't look completely unnatural, and that's something that we hadn't really been doing before. We had IK, and, and for your readers, uh, for your viewers or listeners, <laughs> like IK is essentially, it's the ability to like choose a point in space rather than animating an arm, uh, you know, to, to make it, to, to get a certain motion. You're actually choosing the point in space that the hand will be 
and then like that's that's what's important to you so the computer will calculate exactly where the hand should be and it'll modify the arm and sometimes the body to do that and they were doing that on a four-legged creature you know wow um, like and that was just stunning to me they had like the animated collision on the colossi so you were actually you could climb over this thing and it was actually animating and deforming in the way that and most characters do but they don't have like characters actually you know, moving across them. It's just, it, it was, you always looked like you were connected to the actual, to the, to the monster. And it had to, like, really cool stuff, like, um, when it was swinging you around and you're holding on for dear life, it was actually calculating just a single pendulum of what would happen, you know, if a, if a, just a single bone in a character was spinning around. And it was translating that physics into animation so it would spin your character around from the pivot of the hand that he was holding on with and would apply these beautiful poses on the character and it's just really like you can tell that is a game that was made by an animator like Ueda was formerly an animator yeah. I've, like after like just looking at the last guardian i've got the art book and everything um you can see, like he's really involved in designing a lot of the systems like even and back to the Colossus, like the, the animation in itself, beyond just the technology, the animation's beautiful. So much character. Like I go before it, whereas you would, in a lot of games, just have a run cycle. He has like run cycles with purpose and, you know, just the way he was kind of holding his sword was super nice. Like the way he'd hold his sword to find where the Colossus is and you can rotate it. Like in a lot of games up to that point, we would just simply have a bunch of poses we'd blend between. You know, mostly for for aiming a gun. That's how we'd aim guns in third-person shooters. Whereas that had like a whole bunch of layers, so that they were all overlapping. The character would rotate around, and then the arm would catch up, and then the sword would catch up. Um, I don't know if that was physics or not, but they had cloth on the character. They had all this technologies, all this technology running on top of the game, and that it was just. I guess that's why it. It ran at like 15 frames a second a lot of the time. Yes, yeah. super, <laughs> super expensive. It's funny. I actually got it again on the PS3, and it still ran at 15 frames a second. It was super funny, <laughs> just like just like the Last Guardian sometimes as well, you know. But I love that they're just they don't give a shit. You know, they're just making the most beautiful thing they can do. And if it you know if it dips in the frame rate, who cares? I mean, GTA's frame rate dips all the time, and they don't like nobody gets upset about that, you know. Yeah. Um, but this game is just, it's such a beautiful game. I mean, another thing they had that I've definitely referenced in a talk I gave in Montreal was I loved their camera aim. So the camera itself was a bit of a nightmare. It was better than, definitely better than Ico's camera, but it was a bit of a nightmare. But when you were fighting, like you're only ever fighting one uh, character and it's huge and massive. And so they had the ability to like, one entire trigger on the joypad is devoted to just looking at the looking at your enemy. So you're looking at the Colossus, and it did a whole bunch of calculations, so that cinematically it framed it beautifully. You're in the you're in the lower third of the of the screen. It's in the upper third. It actually spreads you both left and right perfectly. It does it even if you're like whether you're standing a hundred meters away from it or if you're on its head, it'll still frame it, you know, and it gave another button just to zoom in, and that's the kind of, like, that's the kind of shit that I do, I like, I do that in games, like, I like having that kind of stuff in games, but it doesn't make sense, most studios would not 
devote a, a whole button just to make something look even more simple. You know? <laughs> Because it doesn't make sense. You've got to spend your spend your uh, development dollars on important things. But yeah, well, it's also, just like, it's it like was... it's a button. It's like a, a video game controller only has so many fucking buttons on it anyway. Yeah. That is an incredibly important decision to make, like to sacrifice a whole button just to make something look better <laughs> or cooler. Yeah, just to make it cinematic, you know. Um, what else? The horse as well. The controlling of the horse for the first time in a game, I felt like a character controlling a horse i didn't feel like i was controlling the horse i felt like i was the wee boy that was actually like he was making the horse move and it had so much so much stuff going on so the horse was not going to run off a cliff and things that sometimes you could wrestle it but that became like wow that that was actually real it wasn't always doing what i wanted which again they, they took further maybe a little bit too far in the last guardian but um it made it seem more alive and yeah just the just the world like it was like Ico, except it was super open, and I would just, you know, in between going for Colossus fights, I would just go exploring sometimes, and you know, it's one of these. It was so sparse that when you had a big open plane that had a single tree there, you knew that it meant something. You know, it was there was always a lizard there or something, and I love that kind of feeling that I mean, that I'm playing Zelda right now, and that's that's got a lot of that as well. That the world is so big. But you can see items of interest from afar, yeah. And that's what this game did beautifully. You know, it was just so good. It's a game that I think if you pitched it, um, nobody would want to make this game. Like nobody would, nobody would greenlight it. It's basically a game of boss fights uh, with a big empty world. Yes. And that just doesn't make sense. Like, why would you do that? But the emptiness of the world was just so good. I don't believe, you know, a lot of games you can tell, okay, they wanted to make it full of life, but they ran out of time. But this game seems like everything was directed. I do understand that he wanted to have uh, a village in there uh, with characters and stuff and had all these grand designs and just kept pairing it back. And it was like, it was a design by subtraction, it was called. It was just just removing things that didn't matter. Yeah. That's... That's a great way to design any game. It's incredible, it's isn't it? It's like huge budgets. You have this world that, you know, does seem empty and you're sort of floating about. And the one thing about Shadow of the Colossus is if you've not played it, it's kind of foggy all the time. It's covered sort yeah. of in sort of a fog and it's hard to see quite far in front of you. So, you know, you're riding through this sort of desolate land and you, and there is no one there. And then all of a sudden you would see like a appear like sort of peeking through the fog you would see like a like a foot or something all of a sudden like out of nowhere you'd been riding for maybe like half an hour or something and you you're trying to find something and all of a sudden just like the camera would pan not like a little but like all the way up to this top of this giant fucking monster that just appeared out of nowhere and such incredible design choices yeah, it was just so. It's such a memorable experience, you know. You know that that's always going to be a game that stays with you when you play it. Mm. Um, certainly, at the time, I could imagine now people who are used to other things now uh, would probably get put off by the by the frame rate and stuff, and by the kind of it's really faulty camera controls unless you're like locked on to something. But for me, it was just at the time it was super magic. I remember. I was actually in Edmonton in Canada at the time, and I just bought 
uh, treated myself to a giant projector. So I had this projector <laughs> projecting on the wall. It was like 15 foot across, and I'm playing Shadow of the Colossus. Like, it's one of my first games with a projector. It was just phenomenal, just seeing these massive things. And they were huge, you know. That's like, I don't have that projector anymore. It was totally just an extravagance, you know. <laughs> but it was, it was so nice Amazing. To, to play it like that. The music are beautiful and everything. I've bought that game a few times. I think. Yeah, I bought it a few times and on different consoles, and I'm definitely going to get the remake that they're making right yes. now because it looks like it's a total, total remake. There's new art and everything. Hopefully, they don't lose the magic. You know. Yeah, that's what a lot of people are worried about, and uh, you know, Ueda San is not quite as hands-on with it as maybe you would like, considering you know, as you said, like a big part of the sort of special uniqueness to Shadow of the Colossus was his experience as an animator and that sort of feel was his touch of, of being an animator in the past so only time will tell but um i'm apprehensive until proven otherwise but then again the last yeah, guy did buy it. yeah you'll buy it <laughs> yeah i'll just buy it regardless <laughs> just to compare anyway <laughs> yeah well we're going to move on to the second to last game now and um once again we're moving on to a another game that i don't know too much about I know the game. I know it a lot more than I did uh, with Saboteur 2, um, but I, I've never played it myself, and um, it's um, a little bit before my time, so I don't know too much about it. So why don't we listen to some music from this next game, and let's, of course, dive straight into it. So moving in to the second to last game now on Jonathan's list, which is incredibly sad because I'm enjoying so much listening to your passionate talk about games, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure having you. Um, Thanks. But the next game we're going to talk about is a game that originally released back in 1992, but is actually receiving a Nintendo Switch port this year, supposedly. Oh, great. I did not know that. A remastered edition of this game. Um, Oh. Hopefully not the new 3D. No, no, no. This the actual okay. uh, original Delphine cool. software version of this game, um, which is interesting. Um, this game is known for being the best-selling French game of all time. Really? Yes, wow. the best-selling French game of all time, still to this day. Um, and it's as I said, most a lot of these games that you've chosen have been released on an incredible amount of platforms, and this one is no different. Having been originally released in 1992, like on the Amiga and Acorn systems back, and also like the PCMD, the Super Nintendo, and all kinds of stuff, it's been released on so many platforms since, and will be released on the Switch. It's a sort of 
science fiction platformer game very similar to another world um yep and prince of persia i think but it's called flashback or flashback the quest for identity as it's known in the united oh, states wow <laughs> i didn't i didn't even know that <laughs> that's Jonathan. crazy yeah i just played it in the uk oh you played it in the uk so flashback to you then yeah um Flashback is the next game you're taking with you. Jonathan, why is this the second to last game that you're taking? Okay, so unlike Saboteur, this is a game that I will still I will play this every so often because it's visually it's just it was I think so well art directed that the pixel art still stands up to this day. I think like the sixteen bit era was around about the time when that did you know you start making timeless art direction that will still work today. That's why I think some so many people are still getting excited about the Super Nintendo coming out and stuff. Yeah. Um, a lot of these games, well, obviously it's for the gameplay, but these games still look good. They still make sense. They still um, make a believable world because they had just enough technology in order to make it good. And this was like one of the, the, the pinnacle of pixel art. Now, also from an animation perspective, like this is one of the greats and one of the early ones that really pushed it. It came after Prince of Persia, which famously Jordan Mechner recorded his younger brother in some parking lot and, you know, just drew over the frames. I think he got it back on some kind of video recording machine that he could draw over the frames and that's how he did it. I really don't know how they did this one, but I imagine it was a similar similar technique. But this was done not by one guy. This was done by a team um, at Delphine and it was just so so beautiful, so smooth um, and it really obviously it was inspired a lot by Prince of Persia yeah. and it looks a lot like um, Another World as well Yes. although that's that's using a very that was also rotoscoped but that's not pixels, that's actually polygons that are, like there was an editor where he'd for each frame he'd just draw a polygon that would ultimately save probably more memory than than pixels but this one was like I think the pinnacle of that approach that rotoscoping it was the, the first foray into motion capture before that was even possible and you're essentially getting actors or your younger brother to jump around to do moves and then drawing over the top of them and there's obviously a lot of animation skill goes into this because they they had just the right number of frames like I really loved <clears throat> The um the the shooting the gun like the kickback on the gun was fantastic. I think it was like one of the first games I remember where you'd fire a bullet and it wouldn't it wouldn't just be a, a projectile that you'd see coming out of the gun. It was like you'd fire the kickback would happen and the same frame or a frame after you'd see the impact on a wall or on the character you just shot. You know it was just like super real and stylized and. The audio was amazing as well. It really, even now, still transports me to this alien world. That's like it's got a hokey story, but it's like based on it's a lot of Blade Runner, but more so there's a bit of Running Man, but mostly Total Recall. So those are like if you take those three, take those three films and put them together, like that's probably the best film in the world. You know, <laughs> the biggest '80s sci-fi action adventure. <laughs> Yeah, movies of everything. <laughs> it's, and so, like, just the world they created was so good. And I had this initially on the Amiga, um, and again, I was like, back in the day, didn't have any money. I was copying games. We'd actually go down to the Glasgow Barras, if you'd ever been down there, if you're in Scotland. Um, that was like a marketplace where you could go down and 
copy your games and it was all totally it was like the closest thing i ever came to buying drugs was going down there to this dodgy area getting your getting your amiga copies and coming back and i had this french copy of the game and so it was all in french but you could really figure out the story and i i really I, it was my first kind of learning some French words about like, you know, ordinateurs, um, is computer and souvenirs, memory, because it was all about like using the computer to get back your memory. Um, I remember like being super confused because Pierre means stone. So you'd pick up a stone to throw it, but it was called Pierre. And I, I thought that was just somebody's name. So that, that was like <laughs> super weird. Eventually figured out, okay, this is a stone. Um, it's another word for a stone and stuff, you know, but it was so so enjoyable i would finish it and then play it again and then play it again um and i would also later buy it again on the on the mega drive genesis in america just such a good game i think i've got it since then on xbox 360 as well and it's just it's one of these early games that still to this day i think looks beautiful looks so nice the animation everything was so good about it the world they made was so good the audio was great Everything's just um, pretty timeless, kind of in the way that like later Mario games became as well. But this one just aesthetically looks looks so nice, and you know it it plays well as well. It's it's basically a puzzle game that uh, you've got to figure out what are the order of moves that you've got to do. You know, interesting. Like I'm looking at sort of pictures of it, and it does look very bright and colorful for a game of that era, which is really cool. I'm very interested to see what the Switch, if the Switch port is going to be like this like it's going to be like this or they're going to like mess around with it in some way it does seem like it's going to be not a remake but more of a remaster so if you can take that that art style and make it you know a bit more vibrant on that screen that would be really cool yeah i mean if i was to do it i would be doing things like they did with the uprising of street fighter adding more frames um maybe changing the resolution so it's not so pixely but still pixely enough so it doesn't look like you know super smooth yes um because the hard colors like the hard edges to it are really what's nice it's kind of got that you know it's famous that mario has his he was designed in a certain way so you could see his arms and legs going in front of each other uh with his with his dungarees i think he's wearing yeah and this has that it has like the character's designed super simply he's wearing a pair of jeans is further its leg further from the player is darker so you can see them crossing over each other so they had more colors to do than to use than the original mario but um he's got uh he's actually wearing a brown leather jacket which is super 80s and that has so much overlap like that was a great choice of putting him in this jacket that they added the overlap frames it's something you saw more in Street Fighter 3 than Street Fighter 2. They'd have a move, like the fireball, and then they'd animate uh, Ryu's um, his suit, his gi, to actually you know fall down afterwards. Yeah. So it gave your eye something else to look at. And Flashback had that. It had his jacket. It was super awesome. Um, they had some nice stylized things. I recall when you'd swing your gun at, a, at an object, uh, like an enemy, if he was close, you know, you'd gun butt them, and they'd like draw the arc, which is by standard, it's standard by now in 3D games, but that was pretty rare back in the day, you know, it was like just doing smears and things to to modify the drawings was so good, and yeah, it's just like I think it looks really good. So yeah, I'm I'm excited to hear that it's on the Switch, but we'll see. Does it again? Does it keep the magic, or is it? I think I think 
what's unfortunate about the recent, more recent 3D remake that they did towards the end of the last console was that was actually, I believe, some of the original team that did it. Oh, um, okay. And and the you know that's great. I love it. You know when it's original people doing it, but Flashback is a game that's known for its visuals as well as its worlds. And I think they made it pretty much a one-to-one with the game, but it just did not have the... It just has that generic 3D environment, like, not really any art direction to it, kind of just... Yeah. This this is a jungle. They got Unreal. (laughs) Yeah. They got Unreal Engine and basically populated it with stuff, but didn't... Made it too detailed. And I think it's the simplicity of that game that is very impressionistic. That's what made it really nice, kind of like kind of like another world as well, mm. um, Prince of Persia. They they still had that as well. Excellent. Um, yeah, but that's man. It was such a great game to already be working in animation, and then to see this game come out that just super raised the bar. <laughs> it's so cool, like to take those things that you're like, my God, how did they do this, and then try and recreate it yourself, and then you know learn via those types of things like i remember like being young and watching like anime and stuff like that and like trying to recreate by drawing like breaking down how they would draw it and that kind of thing and the process that they get to for having like those very simple hard colors and you know as you said with like his clothing and keeping it very simple but having those little touches that you know make you able to do it and then sort of yourself when you're trying to learn how to break that down and you know do similar stuff is like incredibly interesting I think it's a it's a great way for anybody looking to get into games is to try and emulate stuff. I think it will help you, you know, learn how to do the final result. Um, maybe not to the same quality, but it's only then once you actually do start making the games that you you get to learn like the decision making process yeah. that got to that final result because you're just essentially skipping over it. And I th- I'm sure for a game like Flashback. Uh, such simplicity, they probably went through a whole bunch of complex things to end up with that and it's like any any song you know by a great musician they can play instruments amazingly but they don't feel the need to hit every note they know just the right notes to hit to make the song work and i think that's what that that higher level of game development is it's like you're not just making your sprite based game because sprites are cool you're making it because you know you could do all this other stuff but you've boiled it down to just its component parts and keeping things simple and yeah. stuff. And yeah, it's a good way to approach any kind of game development. Excellent. Incredible. Yeah. It's oh, man. It makes me want to just like open stuff like game maker and just like play with stuff. <laughs> Talking about stuff like yeah, this, get back just to get it. back get to back it. To yeah, work. It just makes me want to get back to it. Um, but unfortunately we're going to have to get ready to send you on your way though. Um, because we it's are hitting the last game though. And we're going to give you that last game. And what a game it is. It's a game that's appeared a few times on Final Games. Probably not as much as it should. It's such an incredible experience. And, you know, recently it's been around because of a updated version for PlayStation 4. And also just on PC, like two weeks ago, was released on PC as well. So that's super cool. But let's jump into Jonathan's final game.
So here we are, we've arrived now, and we have to get ready, unfortunately, to send Jonathan on his way to his Cooper Beach to relax and hide in caves while playing Street Fighter and WrestleMania and trying to break down all these wonderful pixel arts and all these different games. Um, but we're going to send him away with his final game. And his final game is a game developed by United Game Artists, which was a subsidiary of Sega at the time, making games for the Dreamcast and the PlayStation 2. This game was produced by Mizuguchi-san, famous for so many incredibly experimental and wonderful games. It's a rail shooter music game that released back in 2001, um, but most recently received updates for the PlayStation 4 uh, and uh, PC as well, and also VR, which people have just been going crazy about. It's been so cool to see. It's the wonderful Res. Jonathan, why is Res the last game that you're going to be taking with you? It's funny, um, like it's on a lot of platforms right now, but I'm remembering back in the day, it was on, was it Dreamcast and PS2, yeah. I think, initially? It was super rare. Mm. Like, it was a rare collector's item, even back then. And I think I got my PS2 copy um, on eBay. So it'd been out for a while and stuff. But I paid I paid a lot of money for like how much money I had at the time, you know. It was, but I, I really had to play this game. It just looks so beautiful. It was in my kind of you'll just, just hear that a lot, like um, because like I'm an artist, but I buy games a lot because they look beautiful. But this one turned out to also um, played so well. And one of the amazing things about it, so I played it through. I think all in one night. Um, you know, it's a game that you can start. And yeah, finish. it's pretty short, and it was a, it's, Yeah, it's not too. Long, yeah, it's yeah. a short, but, like Street Fighter, but you can play it repeatedly because it's yeah. short, and that's something I like in games. And my memories of this time, it was it was before I went to Canada. I think I'd broken up with a girl. I was not having a good time, <laughs> um, and one of my buddies, yeah, one of my buddies just um, he he gave me a, some pot, gave me a joint. Right, I did not smoke that much, so it really affected me. You gave me a joint uh, for myself, like you said, here, have a night to yourself, and just smoke this and take it easy. And I just bought this new game that turned out was a really good, a really good game to get uh, high yes. with. Yes. <laughs> and and so I played this game while probably more high than I'd ever been in my life at that point. Played it from start to finish, and it was one of these ones where. By the end, I felt like I'd just been to the moon and back. You know, I was like on a journey the whole time. It was super um, important, especially like the first, the first four levels, I believe, are they're kind of standard. Like it's just music and cool, cool visuals. But the fifth one, uh, Area Five, is where it really became like something more than a game. It had a message. It had a, an art style I'd never seen before. I really liked the music. I actually still have that music on my gym playlist so I still listen to it every time I go to the gym pretty much because uh, it inspires me so much um, and it was it was just an amazing experience an evening that that will never I'll never forget it and I've since bought it several times bought it recently like you said it was on VR PS4 PSVR played that with the extra level and that was just something else as well no drugs this time but you just you just don't need that um, you don't need anything other than just like this game. I could I could be there, maybe with a PSVR version on your island, and I feel like I've escaped. You know, it just takes me places. And really, the one of the reasons why it really spoke to me is 
I'd so I'd I think I'd yeah I'd graduated college. I was finishing up. It was before I moved to Canada, but I was working in games for yeah. a while. But um, I got to the end of the game, and if you finished it, you'll know that it kind of he almost Mizuguchi thanks Kandinsky, um, the I think German painter, uh, who had he was famous for. And not only having synesthesia, but he usually he based a lot of his art in synesthesia. And synesthesia is it's it's like a, it's a syndrome. It's not a disability, but it's something. It's a neurological thing where people's senses will get mixed up. They'll um, you if you smell something, it will create clear visions of color in the person's mind. Yeah. So something happens between their nose and their brain that creates visuals. The two things get mixed up and. I know a lot about it because I actually wrote my dissertation uh, in college about Kandinsky and about synesthesia. So when I finished this game and I was like, wow, that was a great experience, then I saw that that was an influence on the game. It just all made sense. Like, And it felt like, wow, this game was made for me. It's amazing. Um, really, it's it's something special about you know music going with visuals. Uh, and it's something I spent a lot of my time when I was studying in college. I wasn't big on animating cartoons. I'm still not. I'm not really. I'm, I'm in a games first and animation second. I was more about um, just marrying visuals with music. And I think that's something that they did perfectly. I mean, just the whole gameplay. I love that you can, you can, you know, draw over a variety of, you know, points to hit, but it only sends the music up and it sends the, 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 what, what would we call it? You know, the projectile yeah. up in time with the music. That's super important. It's a really clever design, you know? So it's about being, you know, creative. You can make your own music. You can hit the thing loads of times, even when you're not, like hit the button, even when you're not shooting. Because if you're really into the music, um, you can draw over them so that it all goes up in one go. You can hit it with rhythm. That I, I think that's one of the things in repeated plays where you know, okay, I know how to complete this game. This time I'm going to play through and just get in with the, you know, get in with the beat and you know, have fun with it and experiment. Yeah. And stuff. And it was just, it was just phenomenal. Such a phenomenal game. And even now playing it looks so beautiful yeah have you played the the infinite version the mo, the mo- i imagine yes you're you're a man who buys multiple copies <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah i i got that that was one of my things i got when i got the psvr oh and so you played the vr version just, as well oh. yes uh, that was it i was just playing that that new level it was fantastic um uh, to me still though area five is the level but playing that in VR, it's just so much better. It was like doing it all over again, you know? I was in that world. The music's amazing. You've got your headphones and everything's just jumping, you know? And I just love the, like, the aesthetics married with the music are just one of the, the, the best marriages I've ever seen in games. And it's rare that we actually put music together with that kind of thing. But I love any element in games, you know, where the music is chosen perfectly. Like Red Dead had some amazing moments mm. where the story hit and then they had completely appropriate music. You know? <laughs> I remember, yeah, it's just so good. I, there was another one, one of my good friends, he was a designer on um, Splinter Cell Conviction and had this moment where, spoilers, you, you learn that you're I think your best buddy was the one that betrayed you as Sam Fisher, you know. Uh, I don't know if he either killed your daughter or he pretended your daughter was dead. I can't remember oh, that I can't remember story. that story. All was, I remember is the vice president yeah. is evil. That's the only part I remember about that. Oh, 
Oh man, well, that's happening in real life as well. well both the but, president um, and the vice president are evil in real life, unfortunately. Just cr- the vice president is Splinter Cell. <laughs> yeah, that would be more manageable, you know. Um, but like, so you get this revelation, but then they just dull out all the sound effects. They give you um, it's like one of, one of the songs of DJ Shadows introducing, and it's just playing that music out, and they just give you i think you had this special move where you could you know if you built up a certain amount of power you could just instantly one shot yes like enemies. yeah yeah Ex- execute it's called it execute just gave you that like oh okay yeah it gave you that for free so you're just running out and just executing everyone with this awesome music that's just paired so magically you know and i love that like that's something i still enjoy doing i've just finished up making a lost legacy uh, animation demo reel and Part of the thing I love about doing that is just cutting it to music. If I find the right music that has the right energy, I'm just going to cut it to the beat of that, um, and it just, it's just super fun, you know. So yeah, that was one of the that's just one of the big things that like struck me about this game. Definitely why I take it to your island. Well, not my island, sir. It's your island from not now because we're going to send you there for you to yeah. be the gatekeeper of the island and for you to sort of. Enjoy the rest of your days playing these eight wonderful games that you've chosen that you obviously have an incredible connection to. It's been such a pleasure listening to you today. Uh, you were yeah, you were saying like off the air that you've met some people um, from from the development team. Like yes, was, sort of the two different development teams, like Mark, who works for Enhanced Games oh, okay. now, who works on the Infinite side of stuff with Mizuguchi, and also former guest of the show, Mr. Jake Kasdal, who, when he got his... He used to work for Sega when he got his first job in Japan. Mizuguchi hired him to work for United Game Artists, and he worked as a concept artist on Res. Yeah, you have to tell him they did a great job. (laughs) I actually met my my first time at E3. I saw Mizuguchi, and I'd, you know, been to Japan not too long ago. I still had some broken Japanese, so... I went up to him and introduced myself in really bad Japanese <laughs> and then immediately switched to English and, you know, I was just like pretty starstruck, but I remember going up to him and telling him, like, I played this game, pretty much the story I told you, like, uh, I broke up with a girl, uh, I was like really high, played his game and it was just uh, such an amazing experience and he said, I think I remember he said that um, it just won a poll in Japan uh, as in terms of like of all the best games to play when you're high, uh, Res Res won the best. You know? So he was, I think he was quite quite enamoured that he was some silly Scottish boy playing it back in Scotland. As well. I'm sure he really yeah. really appreciated that. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, that's so good, Jonathan. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I feel bad sending you and your stories away to a deserted island but it is that time so we have to get you ready thank you so much for coming on thanks uh thanks you're saying that like it's a bad thing if i could go to this island with these eight games i don't like that would be i'm quite happy because the general consensus consensus from my guests usually is that it's a good thing and they're looking forward to you know diving straight into these eight games that they choose and you know relaxing the industry's busy you know you want some time to just sit back and play some games sometimes well there is one last question i have to ask you before you leave and it's the same question i ask everyone before they leave and it's uh you know we talk about games on final games um but one thing that's super important i think you'll definitely agree is that the way we play games 
way we experience them through consoles or through controllers and interfaces and all that kind of thing um, is very important. Um, so if you could only take one console with you, barring PC, because you can emulate anything on a PC, um, taking only one console with you, thinking of the back catalog in mind and also the way you you know, interface with that console and the controller and all that sort of stuff. If you could only take one with you, what would you take? So does this mean if I bring a console, I can't bring any of the games that are on my no, list? No, don't 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 worry about the list. The list oh, is okay. the list is solidified. The list is solidified. Okay, so magically these games all work on that console. Well, or you only have one game per each console okay. you've chosen. And then you have this okay. one console that has a the back catalog. If you could only take one, though. Well, I should say, because I work for Sony, I should say the PS4. Because I love all the games on the PS4. I, I love the console as well. It's super next-gen, you know. But I recently bought a Switch, and I really love that. Like, it's just sitting there playing it. I have it on the big screen, but... Um, being able to just lift it up and take it, so I'm on my, I'm in my cave, on the beach, and if I've got a big TV in there, but if I could just take it and just go and sit, by the water, uh, it would have to be the Switch because I'm really, really enjoying that, especially playing games like um, Nintendo games or games that I'm kind of embarrassed sometimes to admit that I play them because they're super childish, but they are so much. <laughs> You're fun. You're preaching to the choir here, yeah. my friend. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't like to admit it. It's, it's always a treat at Christmas time. I'll always get myself a Nintendo game. Uh, and yeah, I'm really digging my Switch. And now that you told me that Flashback's coming yes. out on it, it makes me think maybe maybe all these games will come out on it. Minecraft's on yeah, it as and well. Street Fighter, maybe not GTA Street 5. Street Fighter 2, technically. Well, not, yep. not GTA 5, but L.A. Noir is, is on Switch. Oh, yeah, yeah. I saw that as yep. well. Yeah, I'm definitely going to double dip on that. Um, so there you go. Yeah, yeah it's just to be the Switch. Well, you can have the Switch, and I I fully understand the, the decision making here as someone who is a who is absolutely adoring the Switch as well. You can take the Switch with you, and all the games that are awesome. in, in this very short lifespan that it's been out, it, the catalog for this console has already become quite incredible. So you can take those with you, yeah. and also the wonderful eight games that you've taken with you. So Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure, as I said. So please tell the wonderful listeners who have listened so far where they can find you on the internet, anything they should be checking out of yours or Naughty Dogs. I believe you just had a wonderful expansion for an excellent game come out. Um, yeah. So please tell the wonderful listeners where they can find all this stuff. Okay, um, I'm on Twitter. That's probably the best place to catch me, if you, especially if you wanted to ask a question. Um, Twitter at, at GameAnim, G-A-M-E-A-N-I-M. And I use that for my website as well, so it's gameanim.com. Gameanim is not so much about me, it's more, um, you know, just collating things. So if you're interested in game animation, that's the Definitely go, go check that out. It's an incredible uh, website if you're into game animation. Cheers. Um, if you want to see some awesome, awesome animation, like have a great adventure that's more in the vein of Uncharted 2 than 4, uh, Lost Legacy just came out. It's really like a love letter to Uncharted 2, especially I worked on the um, the very last section of it. It's like a big action set piece and stuff. So that's like it's like a love letter to Uncharted 2. So play the Lost Legacy, and soon you'll work. Yeah, you might get, be able to say the next game is The Last of Us 2. So that's one to look forward to Absolutely. as well. Working on that 
right now and it's working works so good it makes <laughs> makes all uncharted 4 look like last gen unfortunately wow it's crazy how is that even possible <laughs> yep. crazy it's magic it's naughty dog naughty magic. dog magic indeed so thank you so much jonathan and thank you so much to you for listening to this episode of final games um in case you missed it last week final games has had a little change the schedule is going to change now instead of a weekly show it's now going to be a bi-weekly show so if you want to find out more about that you can go and listen to last week's update episode and uh just get yourself caught up to speed other than that as usual you can always find final games on soundcloud on itunes you can find it on soundcloud.com forward slash final games podcast you know just search final games on google or anything like that if you're on itunes if you would go ahead and review and rate it that would be incredible we had quite a few reviews since last week's update on itunes which is amazing and the outpouring of support and that kind of stuff from last week's update has also been incredible i cannot thank you enough for listening to this show continually it blows my mind um but if you want to find final games on the internet as well you can go to twitter and you can go at final games show and you can also find me personally on twitter at liam bme where i talk about games japan japanese food football and other nonsense so if you're interested in that please do that other than that i hope to see you again soon in two weeks time and thank you so much to jonathan for coming and it's time to send him on his way goodbye bye